0: Welcome to Fu Art Takes. This is our 154th take live from the Alec Bradley Lone Star Studios of Euless, Texas. I'm your host, Barry DuPlessis, as always, and I'm so proud, so pleased, and so privileged to be with you all tonight. This is going to be a fantastic show, a beautiful show, even though both of our teams lost today. We are going to celebrate the victory of being together tonight. It's going to be a fantastic show. I am so excited for tonight's guest. I've been waiting for this show for a while now. But before we get to the honor of introductions, we do have to thank the people that make this show possible. And that, of course, is our sponsors. And tonight's show is sponsored by Drew Estate. Everyone is anxiously waiting for covid pandemic to end so that we can get across the pond because last month Drew Estate announced the launch of the Liga Privada Unico Siri Bauhaus, an exclusive release for the European market. The basic tenet of the Bauhaus architectural movement is that every object must have a purpose in design. The new Liga Privada Bauhaus Short Robusto pays extra attention to leaf placement within the cigar, intentionally designed to take the European aficionado through a newly curated experience. Bauhaus is a short robusto that is wrapped in a rich, earthy Connecticut broadleaf cap, includes a bold Brazilian binder, and is completed using fill-in tobaccos from Honduras and Nicaragua. The Unliga Prada Unico Siri Bauhaus is packaged in an elegant blue 12-count box with gold embossing. Everyone is anxiously waiting for COVID to end so they can get across the pond and get the Bauhaus today. If you got any connections over there, make sure you check it out because they won't last long. Tonight's show is also sponsored by Oveja Negra Brands, four unique companies who share a passion to provide innovative cigars for the next generation of cigar enthusiasts. Black Label Trading Company, Blackwork Studio, Dissonant, and Emilio are combining premium tobaccos with an artisanal touch. Oveja Negra, where art and tobacco collide. Join the flock. And visit ovejanegrasigars.com to learn more. And welcome, everyone. This is our 154th take. I can't believe we're already in 154. It just seems like it was 150 just a couple days ago. Uh, But I am pleased to welcome tonight's guest is sponsored by United Cigar. Smoke one today and start living united. Mr. Joshua Haberski of the Premium Cigar Association. And Joshua, how
1: are we doing tonight? Doing wonderful, Bear. Thank you for having me on. I saw your list of all the guests that you had in January. And I'm like, I'm just proud to be in the mix with all of the, the greats of the industry and uh, really appreciate the the work that you do and the information that you get across to cigar enthusiasts and in the industry at large.
0: Well, I, I appreciate I appreciate that, uh, Josh. You know, it's it's you know it's funny you say that because like I you know I do that post every you know every few weeks or whatever where I'm listing off the guests that I'm going to be having on for the next few weeks and stuff. And it's funny that you say that because as I'm listing those and I'm typing that up and building that that piece, I always say to myself, I'm like, man, I'm just I'm just, I'm just pleased to be a part of this myself. You know, it's, I, I get to talk to great people like yourself, uh, that are doing great things in this industry. And it it just, uh, it, it means, it means a lot to me. It's something that I just really enjoy and my audience truly enjoys too, because we just have, we have a great time on the show and we really kind of, we share a lot of things that a lot of, I I feel like a lot of people just don't know about, uh, about these folks that I happen to bring on. So including yourself. So I'm, I'm pleased that you could join us tonight.
1: Yeah, perfect balance, informative, entertaining. Um, I, I've also been looking forward to this uh, discussion and getting some information out there and talking about uh, some, some new projects that we have going on. And in any interview that I do, I always like to throw a little bit of stuff that's unannounced in there. So we'll see if we can uh, get some information out there for folks.
0: Certainly excited. Uh, I think we've got some of your kin in the chat. I've seen some. I'm seeing some Haberskis <laughs> flying through the through the through the chat here today. So
1: we got a good strong following in Erie, Pennsylvania. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> I uh,
0: I'm always reminded. I Got to be uh, before we kind of start about talking about what we're smoking. And I'm sh- uh, and I apologize. I'm sure you get this all the time. Uh, but I mean, maybe not all the time. It's not like that well known of a film. Um, but I absolutely loved it when I was a kid growing up. Um, you know, Tom Hanks did that, uh, that, that movie, uh, that thing you do, mm-hmm. uh, where the band was based out of Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, so I, 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 whenever I think of Erie, Pennsylvania, I always think of that movie. And I I just, I love that film. So uh, what was it? What was it like growing? I mean, because you grew up in Erie, correct?
1: Yep. Grew up in Erie. My family, my parents are still there. I go back for, for the holidays. Um, you know, you kind of gravitate towards Buffalo, Cleveland or Pittsburgh. Everyone kind of you know, has a central base, you know, where the main airport is, where your sports teams are, where there's a downtown, Um, you know, Erie does have a downtown, but, you know, it's your major city, and I was always the person that gravitated towards Buffalo, so Sabres fan, Um, you know, my dad is a Chiefs fan, so I was... Bills, but I couldn't really tell him that. So he's probably watching right now. But I, I, I think uh, he he had a feeling. But was a uh, divided house.
0: Oh, that's brutal, man. <laughs> Today, he's a Chiefs fan. Interesting. Yeah. How did that? How did that happen? He just like, I mean, I mean, did he grow up in the in
1: the Kansas City, Missouri area, or? He has the most bizarre sports teams. Oh, Ohio State. He likes the Chicago Blackhawks, New York Mets, like, I, I mean, oh, he's, it's all over the place. He
0: did, he, you know, he just took a shotgun to the, to the, you know, to a map of the country. Like, you know, that's, those are my teams right there. Kind of buck, Buckshot approach.
1: Of any of the sports, I think hockey was the one that we all, he actually got a Chicago Blackhawks tattoo. I actually dared him to get it. Oh wow! Uh, we were in Florida. My mom had a, a conference and, uh, I'm like, you're never going to get it. You're never going to get it. And he went and got it. So, uh, we, we had a, had a good time that, that trip in Florida.
0: That's fine. So wanted to kick off tonight. Um, I, I know we're going to be talking about your recent travels, uh, to Nicaragua. And I thought in honor of, uh, our mutual friend, uh, Luciano, Luciano Mireles, uh, I would light up, uh, I would light up the, uh, the dreamer, um, for the first cigar tonight. So, um, I don't know if you had, had a chance to sample any of those down there while you were down there, but I, um, I love this cigar. Uh, it's yeah. absolutely beautiful.
1: Luciano did a, an event with us uh, in October for PCA. And that was one of the cigars that we paired with uh, different cocktails. It was a pop-up fundraiser for PCA. And that was the first time that I had that. Um, and over the course of, of the time in Nicaragua, I had quite a few of uh, you know the Dreamer, all the Picciardo blends, um, and funny story, I, I was coming back from Nicaragua, and actually had, was over capacity in terms of cigars being brought back from Nicaragua. Oh! I had to uh, talk with Customs and Border Patrol, and thankfully they gave me a, a pass because of uh, the work that I do. So it was uh, w- w- one of those things.
0: <laughs> You're like they were a gift, so they have zero value. <laughs> yeah.
1: And then, uh, I brought 30 Lanceros back for Scott Pierce, my, my, my boss. So he, uh, you know, I, I was bringing all that stuff in and I brought some Lanceros, the, the dreamer, uh, back for, for my, my apartment as well.
0: That's, that's, that's awesome. I'm, yeah, we're, we're going to be talking about your trip here in a little bit, but I, I wanted to kind of touch on some, on some, some things because you, you, um, you have, you have this, uh, from, from, from everything that I understand and, and things that I've talked about with other folks that work with you and, and know you pretty well, you've, you, speaking of your dad being eclectic, you're also kind of, you've got this kind of eclectic, you know, um, interest thing going too. Um, so, I mean, but I wanted to kind of kick things off with, um, I know that you're, I know, uh, Scott Pierce was telling me that you are speaking of him. He tells me you're a UFC fan. So like, what do you think of the the big fight last night and everything.
1: Uh, I I had a couple guys over good friends. We were smoking cigars. We watched the fight. I'm a big Conor McGregor fan because I got the the red beard. I I like wearing some crazy suits. Um, I was thoroughly disappointed last night in the show. Uh, But you know, there were a lot of good fights last night. Um, I actually went to the Khabib McGregor fight uh, in Vegas a couple years ago. And um, So I'm, I'm a big UFC fan. I'll watch, you know, five hours of fights on Saturdays. And um, that's kind of the, the pastime, especially over COVID with a lot of the other sports, you know, stopping or, you know, altering their uh, format UFC really, you know, they had two or three weeks off, but they continued. And uh, being a big sports fan, I kind of gravitated towards that. So that's, that's a recent development. I've always liked Conor McGregor. I've liked uh, Jorge Masvidal but, um, you know, the, uh, the real like, likeness of uh, UFC has come recently. Um,
0: I think that, uh, you know, I, it's, it's funny you mentioned recently. So I've, I've, I'm a boxing guy. I've always been a boxing guy. I mean, ever since I was younger, I mean, I and, – and I'm also a big history person. So, like, like some of the, uh, you know, like, when I, when I think about, like, some of the, like, when people always ask me, like, hey, what's your favorite athlete? Like, I cho- I tend to choose, like, athletes that were around, like, when, before I was born. Um, and, you know, so, like, Muhammad Ali is, like, one of, is, like, my favorite boxer. And, uh, I mean, but uh, I, I've kind of just, like I said, I just kind of gravitate towards boxing. I've always kind of loved it. And um, and so when UFC came around, I, I, I wasn't, like, one of those people that was, like, real negative Nancy on it. Like, I just, I don't know. I just, I found boxing to be a lot more at the time, just a lot more, um, a lot more strategic involved, a lot more strategy involved, uh, cause you could only use, you could only use your fests. Right. And, but there was right. so much more to it and, you know, I'm like UFC, well, if it's snow holds barred, you know, it's kind of like you know, where's the, where's the art kind of thing was kind of my, my, uh, my, but I, I gotta tell you, um, I, I I started getting into it, you know, before we shut down with COVID, we started watching it a lot at the cigar shop that I work at. And a lot of the other guys were were into it and they were kind of talking to, they were talking to me, talking me through everything like, and, and, and I I got, I got into it. I really did. I gotta be honest. And it was, it's, it's, it's kind of been fun to watch because like you said, it's like the one thing that hasn't really gotten interrupted too much. And uh, it's been, it's, it's really fascinating to watch. It
1: really is. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it. I had, you know, quite a few cigars and tacos and uh, we'll get into that a little bit too. Speaking of eclectic tastes and stuff like that. um, That's my, my other, you know, passion is, is food. And, you know, last year I got into the restaurant industry as a, a partner and have, two taco and tequila bars in virginia taco rock right yeah taco rock
0: okay yeah so i i I saw that and uh i mean i don't want to get you in trouble here josh how do you get away with the 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 crunchwrap supreme thing that you guys are doing i mean yours looks totally better than the original i'm just saying
1: i'll tell you what the menu is insane there's 20 different types of tacos you got uh, General So's chicken uh, tacos. You got a buria with consommé sauce. Um, but honestly, when I go there, I order the Cuban sandwich. I, I don't know what it is, but pretty much Cuban sandwich every single time. And um, it's a it's a cool concept. I had a lot of friends that were in the restaurant industry, and um, you know, got in as a, a small minority partner last year, and. Uh, We just opened up our our second location in Alexandria and, you know, looking for uh, a third location, you know, potentially in the Fairfax, Tyson's area. Uh, But it's been great. And to me, you know, as a silent partner, I kind of get involved as involved as I want to be involved in. Um, But it's not like, you know, time consuming whatsoever. But, you know, in my role with PCA, dealing with brick and mortar small businesses um, constantly, I learned a lot of different things and have a new perspective from that. In what our average member has to deal with, um, and, and you know, keeping payroll, having employees, things, things like that. And I have the utmost respect for you know small business owners across the board and, and all of the stuff that they deal with, even before COVID, but especially during this time.
0: So it's. I mean, it sounds like. You know, I mean, obviously, a partner. You're, you're, you know, you're. It's a business venture. You're, you know, you've got returns and all that other stuff. But it, it sounds like you get to have fun with it, though.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm involved now in in everything that I'm truly passionate about. Um, you know, in any investments or any involvement of time. Um, I originally set out to be a political science professor. That's what I wanted to do and got into lobbying because I wanted to learn how to teach about you know, political science and the political process and um, you know, have the best of both worlds. I teach as an adjunct now for George Washington University, taught for uh, West Virginia University and Heidelberg University before that. But um, you know, I, I, my focus, I'm 100% focused on the cigar industry, but in all of my passions and free time, it's things that I enjoy, things that pair well, and things that have some type of connection um, to an overall understanding of government relations. And, you know, I tell folks I have my dream job and that's the anchor of who I am. When I, I want people to think in Washington and on Capitol Hill, when they think of, you know, premium cigars, they think of, of what we do as an association, but also, the conversations, the bipartisan discussions, bringing people together. Um, you know, our office prior to COVID, we would have you know one or two events every every, uh, every month, and you have people from all different socioeconomic backgrounds, political leanings, religious backgrounds. It's the melting pot of the of the city, and that's what I want to personify um as i move forward you know with with my career as kind of a an, an ambassador for premium cigars
0: yeah i mean we're going to get into your your work here in a little bit um because i mean what a i mean 2020 notwithstanding um but uh i mean it was quite a it was quite a roller coaster of a year for for pca and 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 uh so you're actually on, you're, you're about 18 months into the job, right? So you, you've got, you're almost at, you're hitting your almost your two month, your me, two month, your two year mark here in just a couple of months in April, uh, which is really exciting. And, and so I'm, I'm we're going to be definitely breaking that down for you. But um, before we do that, I, w- I kind of want to get into, uh, we actually are going to get into it, but I I want to uh, bring up one last thing. Uh, and I think I, I, I have to, because I, I, I get excited when someone shares like some of the same passions that I do as obscure as it is. Uh, I'm a big hat person. Um, most of the people that most people know that I wear baseball caps typically. Um, but I love, I love good newsy hat. Um, I I'll, I'll rock a fedora. I mean, I just love hats. Um, I've always been, a, I've always been a huge hat guy. So, uh, I, I, Thank you for wearing the hat that you're wearing tonight because it's it's so far my favorite and the ones that I've seen you wear. Uh and you you definitely you rock it like a champion. So talk a little bit about the hat specifically that you're wearing and 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 have you always been into hats or like you know is this a re- again is it a recent thing like UFC
1: or or what? No, definitely. I've always been in the hats. I always like the old school, you know, 70s, 80s style, you know, when you watch a Robert De Niro mafia movie or Al Pacino, like the style of that um, with suits, the pinstripe, you know, I don't want to be the, the bland person, the, the suit in Washington that um, isn't relatable. Um, so I want to be a little bit eclectic. You want to stand out a little bit, so I I'm comfortable wearing different hats. i I love the fedora. Um, it's funny when when I'm not working or not doing a presentation, I have a tatawahe flat brim that I always wear. Um, and uh, but this one's a, a Gorin Brothers uh, hat, and uh, it's re- you know recently. Going to Nicaragua, and that I, I wanted to, you know, wear this hat and take a, a photo in the tobacco field. And I forgot it, of course. So I mentioned I packed lights. So th- I finally get to wear it for something in the industry tonight. So uh, when you posted uh, the promo to uh, the show and talked about the hats, I'm like, well, I have to wear a hat. And, and I think part of the reason is. You know all, all the the different uh battles we're facing in that i'm either losing my hair or getting gray hair so it covers
0: <laughs> <me>. <laughs> yeah i mean i haven't uh i haven't had a i've 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 trimmed my beard since covet happened but i i haven't cut my hair so it's 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 getting kind of it's getting kind of crazy back there i need to my wife reminds me all the time that, that i need to get a haircut so it's 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 gonna happen at some point here, um, but uh, but I I mean I was like I always wear a hat, honey. Why does it even matter? Like, <laughs> what does it you know like? it's just like, well, it just looked better if it was cut. Yeah. So, but uh, as the as the saying goes, you know, happy wife, happy life, and everything. Um, but uh, you know, I I I've I've I've, I've grown up with hats. I, I used to wear hats when I was a kid. My mom st- stuck one on my head. I just remember my youngest memories, like whenever I would go outside, she would stick one on my head and it just became part of who I am. I just, I've always had one. You know, I've always, I've just always had something on my head.
1: Yeah, you know, accessories with, with dress and that. I, I love hats and watches. Those are my guilty pleasures. So uh, I know some people love sneakers or, you know, suits. You know, I, I have pretty standard suit collection, but the, uh, I would say the hats. I, I probably have about two dozen different hats. Um, my favorite one uh, is actually one that was handmade. Um, and it was the one that Ed Reed wore during the Hall, Hall of Fame. So that yellow, oh. you can see that picture. I ordered that one. I should have should, wore that uh, tonight, but that's my absolute favorite hat.
0: Oh, that's, I love that hat. I love that outfit. And, There, there, there's a gentleman that I would really love to sit down and chat with. Um, I mean, he, I, you know, for, you know, for that run um, that he had with the the hall of fame and he was just making a lot of public appearances and stuff. And he was just very natural, very he's He's very natural. He was very natural. He's very charismatic. And he like, he had the cigar with him everywhere he went. And he was just, he was very unapologetic about it. Um, And, you know, for the, I mean, for an overwhelming most part, I don't think I ever saw a negative comment about it. For for a time, for the time that we we're living in, there was no, there was nothing negative about it. No one said anything about Ed reading the cigar. They didn't say, you know, like, oh, what a terrible influence he's being on younger, killed, you know, kids or or not, none of that. It was, you know, and I, I think I think that's a that's something that that's something to celebrate. You know, he's able to kind of you know be his own person his love of cigars i mean he even shared one when, when he was doing after you know after a speech you know he sat on the panel uh right. you know and they were talking about and he started handing them out and stuff and and it was just i i i dug it because it, it just and that was on national television and no one cared and
1: funny story when he got his jacket in baltimore they were playing the new england patriots And um, I got my sister and brother-in-law tickets. They're both Patriots fans. And we went there and I had a friend who uh, actually is one of my business partners in Taco Rock and they were sponsoring the pre-party. And I was able to go met Ed Reed and gave him a cigar um, while, while he, we were just chatting in that. And then at the game, he had that cigar on the field. And I was like, perfect product placement i'm doing my job all these uh, thousands of fans see ed reed with this cigar he may have had a different one but i like to tell the story that it was my cigar uh, that no,
0: don't don't even li- don't even put any shadow of the doubt that was your cigar that was great, yeah. that was, that was great. <laughs> that's that aw- that's great that's all that's awesome i i like i said i just i i really dig it because it was just like it was just it was just so refreshing it was so refreshing that nobody cared nobody said anything like i was waiting i was waiting for the shoe to drop and it, it just never came and thankfully like it, it it just the moment passed and you know he was we were able we were for 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 the first time in a very long time in a, in a very grand stage our industry wasn't looked down upon and that was that was great
1: you know, he, he was at the forefront of it before, you know, a lot of other other athletes, you know, started using c- cigars, you know, it, it's been a time-honored tradition where you celebrate with a cigar, and you get some of the negative press, you know, oh, they smoke cigars in the locker room, you see the, the reports here, and news story there, but for the vast majority of it, it I think athletics and cigars and the connection has been very positive for our industry overall. You know, you don't see the team that loses the game smoking a cigar. It's the victory cigar. Right. The that win the championship, from you know LeBron to the um, you know Alabama football. Team to the, you know, even the, the the Women's Hockey League, they were on the ice smoking cigars. Yeah,
0: can- National Canadian team. Yeah. yeah. And they, they caught flack for that. They, I remember that.
1: Flack for it. But, you know, people that are at the, the prime of athleticism and sports and at the top of their industry, they can sit back, celebrate. And they're legal adults enjoying a legal product, and you know I think a lot of times it's a conversation piece. You, you know we're constantly, and we talked about it a little bit before, constantly educating policymakers about what a cigar is and what a cigar isn't. And um, you know for different people it has a different purpose. It might be you know you celebrate a birth of a child, you might celebrate uh, a victory of winning a national championship, but for others it's your downtime like for me, I was a cigar consumer and enthusiast. And I look at it from that lens before my policy lens uh, first and foremost. So I enjoy, this is my social um, you know, tool where I like to sit with a lot of my friends, many that I've known for a decade, sit back, catch up on things. Um, you know, even over COVID, we would do the Zoom um, discussions five, six people, everybody gets a cigar, try new things, talk about the different blends. Um, So, you know, I do tell folks and it is absolutely true that I have my dream job um, because I studied to do political science and government relations, but I'm doing it for an industry that I truly believe in, that I truly care about. Um, And I'm very fortunate to have the opportunity to represent small business owners and you know the millions of folks across the country. I want to defend these things because I use them myself and I enjoy them myself. So there's that personal interest there um, that's top of mind.
0: Indeed, I want to, I want to put a pin in that uh, that point about uh, education because uh, that's obviously going to come up in uh, tonight's major point. And so, uh, as always. Uh, Our major point is brought to you by uh, Baracoa Cigars. Baracoa is back getting ready for the relaunch of The Voyage in early February. That's just one week away, guys. I cannot wait for the cigar to come back. It's been over three years, but now with a revamped blend coming out of one of the hottest factories in the industry, Danny Vasquez promised if you like the original blend, you're going to love the relaunch. Stay tuned for more details for how you can enjoy The Voyage. And remember, never settled. Baracoa Cigar Company. So, Josh, tonight's major point. I, I want to kind of focus on a, a kind of piecemeal together of your career mixed with mis- mixed with the past year uh, of PCA here. Um, I, so I, I kind of start from the very beginning in your in terms of your career here, and it's, it's like I said before. It's this uh, b- when we were talking in the green room before the show launched, it's a very broad brush here, but I want to kind of b- do my best to kind of paint it. Grassroots is your area of expertise now that's a very broad subject so why grassroots what drew you you said you wanted to be a political science professor what drew you to grassroots specifically when you were doing this kind of like study in order to share that experience with your students
1: yeah so I'll tell you what it's kind of a, a, a odd career path you know most lobbyists will do you know, several years on Capitol Hill. I interned for a Congressman way back when, um, but you know, my career path started in grassroots and it was my barrier or my point of entry into government relations. Uh, when I graduated from Georgetown with my master's, I had um, you know, been working in public affairs and, and had a part-time job for the DC government basically just trying to pay for rent and, you know, live in this city. Um, And I knew I wanted to go into government relations. I think that of any of the different areas, you can shape and work policy. And if you put the time and effort, you can have a real impact on industries and people um, and and have have a positive impact on society. So I got my first job in grassroots for the American Motorcyclists Association, uh, representing um, motorcycle enthusiasts on highway and off high. So the motocross, the mo- I got to go to the Monster Energy, another very cool job. Um, and uh, but I was never a motorcycle enthusiast, uh, so did that for a stint, and then went actually for a year uh, in public health and worked for the American Diabetes Association. Um, and um, you know, I my uncle had passed away from from diabetes. And that was a a passion project. I had an opportunity, um, actually the gentleman who I co-teach a class at George Washington was my boss there. uh, And he brought me over for for a year. And then where I really gained my stripes in in grassroots along the way, um, I went over to the Independent Community Bankers of America and Financial Services, and this was towards the beginning of the Trump administration where they did a lot of financial rollbacks and we were successful. Um, You know, I I was there for three and a half years and in that time uh, got some major wins and really had the the pick of where I wanted to go. I had started a a nonprofit um, and done a ton of speaking engagements and presentations and and writings on grassroots. So, you know, wrote eBooks uh, was a contributing editor for Campaigns and Elections Magazine, The Hill, so my voice was out there in that grassroots space. Um, and along the way, I uh, befriended Dan Trope, uh, who uh, is a, still a good friend of mine, um, who was the Director of Federal Affairs at IPCPR. And um, they they didn't have a grassroots program. And I, I'm like, Dan, I wanna do this. I wanna help build a grassroots program for IPCPR. So I presented to Dan and Scott um, and we built Cigar Action actually before um, I came on board full-time at PCA. So I was a consultant working part-time for the association for a year before I ended up, when, when Dan left, um, I'll tell you what, I think I've lobbied the most to get that job. That was the the toughest period of time because that was my passion. I knew my dream job was right in front of me. Um, And I actually had a trip to the Dominican Republic while they were deciding it. And it was the worst trip ever because I kept looking at my phone. I was waiting for Scott to text me or email me. Like I wanted to know who got the job. And um, I was so thankful to get that news and, you know, be able to continue to build Cigar Action in the grassroots program, but also, you know, go through the issue set and do direct lobbying. I did some direct lobbying with ICBA, but this was, um, you know, the major role to lead a program um, of of my own. And I've been very grateful for, for that opportunity and the um, I interviewed with with all of the folks on the, the PCA IPCPR board, and um, I knew right away that this is the perfect fit for me, and um, I, I love every minute of it. We Even when we have challenges, you know, I, I don't view criticism and some of the negativity as, you know, we're going to shut this down and these voices matter and we need to stay sharp. We need to stay focused. And some of that negative feedback or criticisms, we need to work into it and build a, a strong program. So I'm grateful for every minute in, in this role.
0: You know, Josh, there's something that, you know, it, I have to ask like, it, and, and I think the answer, I think you've already given the answer and I think the answer is right in front of us. But I mean, I mean, let's just take a look at this this the short history of, of of your career here in, in a little bit of a spectrum here. Um, you're you're an adjunct professor, you know you're experts in your field. You've been published by, like you said, The Hill, um, and which is a really great publication. But let's you left one major one out, which is the Huffington Post, which is I mean a huge deal. Um, like you said, your voice was out there. I mean, I, I, I was going back and I was looking at some of the stuff that you that you've written. And I mean, it's I mean, it is all over there. I mean, if I mean, it is a it is a study in. In, you know, political science, just the way that you were able to get your voice out in so many different arenas. Finance, I mean, a very cool one, like you said, with the uh, uh, you know motorcycle sect and everything. Premium cigars, we were talking about this a little bit before the, 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 in the green room before the show. Tobacco is not a small lobby, but the premium cigar very much is. The premium cigar industry very much is. Did you feel like, I don't know, and I, I, I please don't mistake my tone here. Did you feel like that this was, you were forsaking a career advancement to really concentrate on a passion? I mean don't get me wrong I'm, I'm thrilled that you're part of the fight i'm just i'm i just kind of look at your resume and i i'm just i'm i'm like i said i'm I'm just thrilled to have you as part of the fight considering and considering the, some of the organizations that you were a part of i mean was this was this i mean i guess you, you just said it a few minutes ago was this truly the, the the dream job that you've been looking for
1: absolutely and i i think i also like a challenge i don't want to you know, we had just won a a lot of victories at ICBA, you know, we got a bill passed, we were signed into law. So at that point, it was, you know, what's the next issue? What's the next fight? And for me, I looked at what was going on, you know, reading Cigar Aficionado, watching the different podcasts and and, 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 uh, video interviews of what was going on. You know, I was a, a an advocate. I was sending the CRA alerts. I was sending, you know, the PC or IPCPR alerts, and um, you know, I saw the opportunity and also the challenge of, you know, the FDA is coming down, Congress is coming down. We need to get this organized and and fortified and and make sure that we build our defenses up. And you know, I I, I saw the opportunities, and there were some definite fights that had upcoming deadlines, you know, substantial equivalents, the warning labels and the you know, the work that the courts have done. And I wanted to be a part of that auxiliary uh, in the lobbying and advocacy sphere that supported those deadlines that would take place and also fight the new challenges at the state level and, and, and the federal federal level first and foremost. So you know you had those conversations, the national conversation, if you recall about a year ago was youth access to tobacco. Mm -hmm. And you and I both know premium cigars are not consumed by youth, but get lumped in uh, to all the other tobacco products. So I wanted to be the voice out there. And, you know, I leveraged some of those communications tools in the publications, you know, Huffington Post, Bloomberg, you name it. and. There was a piece that I did, and maybe it wasn't the the best for for my long term career uh, that I did for Roll Call that called the public health groups out and said, you know, you're raising money off of a fear campaign about youth access to tobacco and going after all products and painting a wide brush, and I don't think anybody. At the time, wanted to really do that counterpunch. Everyone would talk about it, but I, I my tendency is to be a lot more aggressive. You know, if there's an issue that pops up, I want to, you know, state a clear position. That's why you see more position papers and statements by PCA. Um, if you look at the vast majority of the content that we're pushing out. There's a government affairs angle to it. You know, the blog post, uh, even some of the magazine content. And Aaron and Scott um, have done a fantastic job in helping, you know, paint those pieces and, and bring those to the forefront. But I wanted to be a content producer. I wanted to sell advocacy as a key member benefit of why um, you're part of the association. And obviously, as, as you know, Um, with COVID and the cancellation of the trade show last year was uh, a challenge for many different associations and PCA being one included. But I think that you saw advocacy and the response that we had with the PPP, getting the information to our members, you know, it wasn't like despite all of the constraints, the furloughs and budgetary constraints, we were still able to accomplish a lot. And You know I I told Scott and and John Anderson who I I love working with um, that whatever deck that we're dealt with we're going to be able to play a hand we're going to be able to respond um, you know I don't want stuff to slip through the cracks so we're going to put in the extra hours we're going to put in the extra effort and um, you know that that's kind of been the north star or the guiding light of our program is that um, if you're a PCA member You're going to be defended in the halls of Congress and your state state legislatures, and we're going to make you aware of things. We key up legislation, and then the grassroots component, the advocacy, the retailers, manufacturers, and consumers, they're the essential ingredient. If we lose a battle, it's going to be because we're not organized together, working together, professional staff plus grassroots.
0: This is why, if anyone anyone in my audience doesn't know who you are, what your role is, this is why everyone should be excited about your position uh, now coming almost into its second year with PCA uh, because of your expertise in grassroots. Because this is one of been my biggest criticisms of the industry is that mobiliz- our mobilization has been really lacking. And I think that and I and I can and I can say this honestly, just not because you're sitting in front of me, but I can say this honestly that it has been. Uh, while I still have some issues with some of it, nothing's um, ever perfect, but I can say that it's been drastically improved uh, with the team of you and Scott and the board of directors. Now, it's, it's and I think you've been. I, I think you've been the linchpin in that because of your background in mobilizing the uh the grassroots campaign and it all started you weren't even part of the group yet you like you just told me i, I had no idea that uh cigaraction.org was was it was your brainchild um and that's something that so talk to me a little bit about this because there was some confusion at the very beginning when it was launched at least from my perspective and i think maybe collectively as well you know we have cra um and then we have cigar action what 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 are the differences or is it just a collective effort that you are now working together or, you know, why create this this separate entity from from uh, when there was already a very, you know, a pretty successful advocacy group in, in CRA, what, what was the impetus of that?
1: Yeah, and we, you know, we work with Cigar Rights of America, you know, on a weekly basis, we have calls um, and, and Glenn and I have um Glenn has been a mentor uh, of mine in teaching me some of the internal politics, uh, all about the you know the the cigar industry ins and outs. And he and I developed a really good relationship, even when he was over, um, you know, running CRA. So we had a collaborative spirit, you know, from from the very beginning. We still do, and we kind of divide and conquer with Cigar Action. What I wanted to do. Is you know the retailer is the point of entry and the point of access to a lot of the con- consumers, but we wanted to give a grassroots voice to the retailers and the employees. So, Cigar Action, you will find all of the different advocacy information, federal, state policy resolutions, you know, tips and tricks for retailers to use grassroots tools. Um, but the messages themselves that are sent to elected officials. They're drafted in a way as it's coming from a retailer or an employee. And then we also have the the second level of the consumer if they want to share and have an iPad at their cash register and say, you know, sign this petition. Um, So, you know, there's some duplicative efforts with uh, the work that CRA does, but our central focus has always been retailers. Um, I, I think that. terms of ease of access, it always is great to have a one-stop shop. And that's why for some of our larger campaigns, you may see messages that are manufacturer, retailer, and consumer. So we want everybody to um, be involved in it. I mean, if one of the three spokes of the wheel isn't working properly, we put ourselves at a disadvantage in those policy fights. So um, I think that the work that CRA does and the work that PCA does really complements one another. And um, you know, the folks in the anti-tobacco groups and the public health groups that we face off against on many of this, these things, they have organized armies. They have much more financial resources. So we really have to uh, ensure that we're doing as much as we can, uh, working in tandem.
0: I have a question about our opposition here in just a second, but I wanted to I wanted to address a question from Orlando in the chat. You know, he's a he's a lifetime member, as I am, of CRA. He's also a member of PCA. Um, And, you know, he 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 uh, he has a he he has a, a fire set about him that he wants to get involved with this. I mean, with your experience here, Josh, is 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 lobbying one of those things where, you know, like actual lobbying, not the mobilization, not the grassroots movement itself, but actual lobbying itself. Is that something that, you know, less is more or is more truly a better a better thing when you think about uh, when, in terms of lobbying for your position?
1: I think a lot of lobbying is all about strategy and being focused. Um, you know, I think our approach for the past two years has been the rifled approach versus the shotgun approach. We want to make sure that we're getting the right information to the right person at the right time. So, um, you know, that's kind of the science to it, but there's also the art of of lobbying. And I think that, um, you know, working with the administration, working with HHS, the FDA, um, uh, you know, the White House, that, you know, last December was when we really did, it was one day we took all one day full day and did a series of different meetings and teed it up and said, you know, this needs to be at the forefront. We need to, you know, come around and solve this issue. And um, you know, the lobbying strategy supported the litigation strategy. We, we got everybody talking together, you know, PCA CRA, endorsed the definition of a premium cigar. And, you know, there at the time were five, six different definitions, Um, You know, with some of the recent announcements, we're getting closer and closer to that definitional debate being over and solved. And, you know, once we have that, it's easier for us to work, especially at the state local level and get exemptions and carve premium cigars and carve the vast majority of products that are on the shelves of PCA members out of the stuff that affects cigarettes and vaping products so, um, you know, I think we, we were very strategic. We got organized and we were able to put some pieces together. Um, and, you know, I think the first year we did over 350 meetings. That was the main educational blast. We were on the Hill, uh, Patrick Anderson, one of our consultants, and I, some days would do back to back 12 meetings, in, in, in 12 meetings, three days a week, Tuesday through Thursday and that was important of getting it out there and you know they got sick of hearing about premium cigars like the white house we did over a dozen meetings and and of any of the different special interest groups you know we were there we had a seat at the table we were meeting with the domestic policy office we were meeting with the higher-ups um we had a presentation for the center for tobacco products and director zeller an hour-long um you know, stakeholders meeting where we got to present information and stats and figures and then send follow-up. So I've been pleased with how we've been able to organize. You know, we have a lot of battles um, of, you know, how should we do this? How should we not do it? You know, within the organizations, within the, the um, you know, chatter, everybody in the cigar industry has an opinion, which is great because it keeps us on our feet. And, and we do take a lot, uh, a lot of that to heart but I am proud of the fact we were able to get organized. We were able to, you know, not spend resources and spend time in unnecessary areas, you know, chasing windmills like Don Quixote. I,
0: I still want to hit on a point about our opposition here in a second, but I, I want to, so you, you and I've had, I've had the privilege of interviewing Scott Pierce on a number of occasions, including on this show I've also had the privilege of interviewing Glenn Loop several times, and Glenn, Glenn and I have a, a, a I would, I would say, a, a very wonderful mutual professional respect for each other, um, even though I feel like we go at it like dogs sometimes, <laughs> um, and I think it's both because we're both very passionate individuals. Um, but this, you bring up a, you brought up something that it, it to me has always been. A point of interest and curiosity without necessary specifics mentioned. So, you mentioned how you met with the White House, and that's a very general term. Now, you mentioned a couple of key departments there, and you said higher ups. Now, I've heard that several times. I've heard Glenn talk about that. I've heard Scott talk about it. When we talk about, when I think of, I mean, and I think I, I don't, I don't think my um, my ignorance might be speaking here, but I, I don't think I'm I'm going at too out on a limb when I hear White House and I hear higher ups. I don't necessarily think the executive itself. Like, I don't think you're sitting down with president. I'm not that, I'm not that, uh, that far, you know, lost, but I mean, when you say higher ups, are we talking about, are we talking about cabinet level? Are we talking about OMB or like, are we talking about like what, what higher ups, like how high does the, do these meetings go, um, to where our influence is being heard, hopefully at the executive level and
1: yeah. I, I mean, at the director level, at the agency head level, um, definitely. I mean, we have a, a seat at the table, um, you know, their OMB and uh, the Office of Domestic Policy, uh, Domestic Policy Council, the Office of um, the White House Council, we were in routine ma- meetings. They had a working group on the issue of premium cigars. That's how high it went, is within the White House, there were three different divisions that were meeting on a biweekly basis for a while on the issue of premium cigars. So that was a huge achievement. Um, and we also work with our congressional allies. So, um, you know, different members of Congress from specific delegations um, have a higher impact. So, Pennsylvania and Florida, two states, heavy footprint in the premium cigar industry, heavy input. In, uh, footprint in the retail sector. Uh, We leverage those delegations and we know that stuff that we've written and produced and talking points did go all the way to the president of the United States or and the chief of staff on a regular basis. Uh, So sometimes it's not, we're sending a a document that um, is is read by, you know, at the time, President Trump or now President Biden, uh, but we're working through our networks and our channels to get that information in different ways. So, you know, it might be a passing comment um, as, as the president's getting off of Air, Air Force One with a, a, a key ally, um, or it might be a policy memo that uh, several divisions are coming together and, and um, you know, researching this, this idea. You know, I've heard
0: a lot about Pennsylvania being involved and Florida obviously being involved, but even like, uh, you know, you were an adjunct professor at West Virginia. And so even the Senator uh, Joe Manchin uh, from uh, from that state has been an advocate for our industry as well. But I don't hear a lot about Connecticut. Is there a reason why, uh, is it just that the, because the footprint is so much larger in the state of Florida and Pennsylvania kind of follows suit with that? Or is there another reason why we don't hear Connecticut as often as being involved in uh, in our fight? Or yeah, am, I, am I being, am I just completely ignorant?
1: I, I think you're right. I think that the uh, delegation in Connecticut hasn't been as active on the issues as they could be. Um, you know, we work in, in trying to um, showcase the footprint of the, the of farming in Connecticut. I think it's been a, a, an avenue that um, we've pursued um, you know, getting Democratic champions like Joe Manchin um, on board is obviously a priority right now. Um, I think that, you know, with the Senate flipping, we, um, we have to make a concerted effort uh, even more so. We're a bipartisan um, trade group. We're a bipartisan industry. You know, there are Democrats that are great on our issues. There are Republicans that are great on our issues. And, and vice versa. Some of them are, are, are terrible on our issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that education side of things, like, I mean, I can tell you this, we've had staff members from Senator Durbin, who I think is probably the toughest advocate for um, things that run contrary to our, our positions. We've had his staff at events learning about premium cigars. So, you know, we're not going to... Stop our outreach with anyone. You know we plan on getting information out there to any congressional office that will listen to us. And we don't see red. We don't see blue. We see the premium cigars or the party of premium cigars. So um, you know that that's going to continue and, and really be exacerbated right now with the divided government. Um, you know we have to go and, and meet with the new. Um, leadership, especially in the White House, Domestic Policy Council, Office of the, the Council, um, as well as you know a lot of the FDA, for the most part, other than the commissioner and the top few positions, those are career positions, so they're, they'll carry over. We had a great relationship with the Office of Communications for uh, the FDA and the Center for Tobacco Products. They I actually spent some time... Um, with, with their director at TP I, when I was speaking out there last year and, um, you know, talked a lot about the distinction of different products. Um, so they get it. And, and of any of the issues that intrigue them the most, it's this issue because as small of an industry as we are, we, we definitely fight weight above our weight class. And there are, you know, times where we don't win, But we're fairly organized and fairly influential, considering that there's only a handful of people really working on these issues.
0: We're going to talk about our our, some of our great victories in 2020 here in just a minute, but I wanted to focus on two points here Um, so and I want to go back to our opposition. So uh, as, as everyone, as our audience knows, I, um, I work with uh, William Cooper on Cigar Coop Primetime Special Edition, and we have, we have an open invitation um, to the director of Tobacco Free Kids, Matthew Myers, to come and sit down with us at any point. We would love the opportunity to interview him. We'll give him an, an honest, an honest and, 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 you know, an honest and fair effort to, you know, to have a discussion about, you know, our, you know, our obviously opposing views. Um, but that's, that's something that I would, uh, I relish the chance at, I'm, I'm interested, have you run into that organization much? Have you, have you had any direct contact with, uh, uh, with uh, Mr. Myers, or, you know, or any of these other anti tobacco lobbies? And what has been, what's that, what's that, I don't want to say confrontation, but what's that discussion been like?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very cordial. You run into a lot of people from the different organizations. I know a lot of folks at the American Heart Association, which um, I think in, in some cases is, is the toughest. Um, they do a lot of great research um, in, in going after diseases. And same thing with the American Cancer Society. They have admirable missions when it comes to the, the research side and curing diseases But, um, you know, on the advocacy side, I think that they're a little misguided. Um, So, you know, a lot of our interactions with them, they'll send out this blast email to, you know, every health legislative assistant, you know, saying that, you know, for instance, they supported the Pallone bill um, going back to last Congress. And, um, you know, they supported a price point definition Of of a premium cigar, they you know flavor bans, all all of the above restrictions. So pretty much, if there's a restriction on tobacco of any kind, they're going to support it. Um, So we push back against that. And um, one of the things that I love to do, and we actually just did it this weekend for a state level issue, is we get their talking points, we see it, and we do a myth versus fact. I will take the, the information that they have and debunk it. And we'll send that out. You can find it publicly available on our website. You can see it, You know the congressional offices get it. So um, we're not giving them a free pass because they do some admirable work um, you know, in, in the research side. We are going to you know, assert our position. We're gonna do it aggress- aggressively, respectfully, and with fact-based information. You know, we talk about scientific data-centric information, but we're going to hit it with a one-two punch, economic data and health data. All of the PATH study information is on our side. Everything that has been produced thus far by the National Institute of Health, Food and Drug Administration has supported the position of the uniqueness of premium cigars and that we shouldn't be regulated in the same way uh, as these other products.
0: I, I think it is, I, you know, I. It, it's really great to hear that you are, I mean, going head to head with, I mean, these are some major, major lobbies that we're talking about. Master, American Cancer Society, American Heart Association, Tobacco-Free Kids. I mean, these. there's a lot of money that is going into anti-tobacco campaigns, especially with these organizations. And the fact that we're still in the fight against these uh, large organizations is just, it's really it's it's really great to hear, um, but to that point about education, you know, you you had mentioned you've mentioned this a couple times already tonight, and I heard this in your your recent discussion with Scott Pierce on uh, you guys you guys do this great show on on the PCA page where you you uh, come together for these chats and everything and have these great educational spots where you kind of talk about what you know current efforts and everything that's kind of going on, keeping everybody as well informed as you can. And then something grabbed me. Like it was like three minutes into y'all's discussion this week. This was just a couple of days ago that you and Scott were talking about. And you mentioned something that just really popped. It caught my ear. I was like, Are you? And I got a little frustrated, not with you, but I got a little frustrated because I was like, I can't believe this is still going on. But you're saying that you were saying on a weekly, if not almost daily basis, you're having this discussion about premium cigars and you're still having to explain, define, and educate people and what a premium cigar is. So here, here's my question, Josh, how I'm frustrated just hearing this. How do you not get frustrated with the fact that you seemingly like you're beating your head against the wall, explaining something that is incredibly obvious uh, to, I think the layman and the cigar industry itself that premium cigars are different?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that we have to be persistent. We can't be reactionary. We can't always fight against bills. We have to be proactive and get our message out there. So, you know, there might not be a bill that we're supporting or opposing at any given time, but we need to ensure that we're the resource for members of Congress and state legislatures. When a tobacco issue comes up, I want to make sure that our retailers have a relationship with their elected officials where that elected official calls them and asks them about the bill, what they think. Um, and and that, that takes time. It, it, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, I mentioned year one, we did 350 plus meetings. It was exhausting. It was, um, we had no meeting where we were chased out of the office or it was confrontational. Um, you know, and even- It's encouraging. We met with Senator Durbin's office, we met with uh, a lot of folks that you know could be considered anti um at large but we're doing a good job in getting the information out there about the distinctiveness you know we wanted to take time and preparation and this is where Aaron and Scott have been instrumental in getting our talking points developing one-pagers easy to access information that we can get across to large swaths of people You know, at the federal and the state level. But I can tell you, you know, every once in a while, and it happened two weeks ago, where an ant or like a completely anti tobacco bill was introduced at the state level. And the sponsor, but you know, we got on the phone with the sponsor because we don't want to come out and oppose something without trying to negotiate, you know, what have a conversation with the staff. What's their current thinking? Can we achieve a policy goal? Is this the best policy solution? So, you know, we want to negotiate. We can't always go and oppose everything. If we, everything that was anti-tobacco, if we opposed uh, from the beginning, our batting average would be a lot less than it is (laughs) right now. So. Um, I, I think that we, in that case, we negotiated and we talked with this uh, elected official, and we're going to improve the bill because they didn't even know what a premium cigar was. They, they flat out said, "What, what is a premium cigar?" So we got that information out there, um, and um, I, I think that you'll have that um, frequently, especially when you're talking about 50 different state legislatures with. <laughs> Uh, hundreds of elected officials, there's going to be outliers. Um, and, you know, some people don't want to hear what we're, what we're saying, or they don't want to know about the industry, and they're not going to actively seek that information. So we have to do a little bit more handholding and be a little bit more, um, you know, getting that information out there as part of a concerted campaign. So, you know, I think of of anything that we do from a staff perspective, it's education, not only lawmakers, but educating our retailers and our members to be their own advocates um, where they can go out and spread that message. Because when it comes from a retailer, rather than a, a paid hired gun lobbyist, um, it's much more impactful. And that's why we want to do fly-ins. Um, we want to organize. And and I, I still believe the substantial equivalence rule um, in, in the court decision that discussions that John Anderson, Greg Zimmerman, uh, Rocky Patel, George Padrone, and Alan Rubin, those five individuals, I think that they had the most impact of, you know, versus what would I do? Um, I think that their commentary in that fight led to uh, that victory. And um, they really went above and beyond um, and were in D.C. fighting for this um, actively. And they did a real service to the industry. You know, we prepped them and and got materials and talking points. But, um, you know, they really crossed the finish line. They crossed the goal line.
0: It's really great to hear, and those are some really—I mean, those are the those are the people that we want lawmakers listening to. I think you—I think you hit the nail on the head there, Josh. And because these, I mean, I mean, again, I, I'm just—I'm just echoing your sentiment there. I mean, it, this directly impacts them. You know, while you're you're certainly a part of the industry, and you you have as much at stake as 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 Alan Rubin does, for example. I mean, this is his life. This is his livelihood. This is his legacy. This is his family business. This is something that you know directly affects not only his current position, but I mean, for his future generation. His two sons are now involved um, with within the industry, and it's it, it's it, it's it's great to hear that they are making they actually are making an impact on lawmakers and everything. I do want to talk about the decision uh, by a Menta about the substantial equivalence here in just a little bit, but I. I, I Uh, in in detail but this was a really great this past week this was really great the 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 results of that decision came down and the FDA actually released its final rules regarding uh, substantial equivalence and PMTA um, the day before uh, President uh, Biden's inauguration then but but then as and this is something that's actually typical so I would love for you to talk about this so we have now in a new executive in the Oval Office and President Biden, it, this isn't meant to be taken personal. It's just apparently how things go. He announces a, set, a a freeze on all regulation. So basically the decision that happened a day ago, which was like this was a, this was the culmination of of all your efforts. And then now there's a freeze on all regulatory uh, on all regu- on all regulation. So what is that? What does that mean? Like, where are we at now, Josh?
1: For sure. Before I answer that question, I, I skipped over your question about what we were smoking. My first cigar, we just mentioned Alan Rubin, which reminded me I was smoking uh, the Kinzuki, um, a uh, robusto, and you know, an Alec and Bradley. I also have my Rabbit Air going uh, with the Alec Bradley design. So. I wanted to give him that proper shout out for that. Actually, I and I mentioned to you in the, the green room that I watched uh, the show that Alan did and then the day after uh, you asked me on and I, I, I was honored to uh, be a guest uh, on the show. Um, in terms of the question about what transpired with the final rule and the regulatory freeze, um, you know, the final rule for us pretty much laid intact everything of Judge Mehta's decision. Um, it, it was really a punt um, by the FDA on the issue of premium cigars um, in terms of the regulatory structure. Um, you know, they're going to undergo research and collect additional comments. Um, you know, they, they had, uh, I believe it was two months ago, released a RFP for research on premium cigars for a 21 month study. So that's going to happen over the course of the next year or so as they're going to undergo a study on premium cigars, um, you know, and if it matches all of the past data, we're, we're in good shape. We, we want them to study usage patterns, feedback, things like that, because it debunks a lot of these myths that are purported by anti-tobacco advocates. Um, the big piece of the final rule in the substantial equivalence in PMTA that was positive was it fortified the definition of a premium cigar, which was in the draft guidance as well as Judge Meta's decision. And it's important because it didn't have an economic quantifier, so it includes the vast majority of products that are on the shelves of um, you know, PCA members, as well as the, the manufacturer, um, you know, they're the vast majority of their products. And it's important because the industry has been divided over, you know, what is a premium cigar, what isn't a premium cigar. And I think in a lot of those discussions, the divisions prevented us from having a concerted discussion with the policymakers. You know, we're asking for exemption, we're asking for tailored regulation, and then we have five, six different, different definitions of, of a premium cigar. Once we get a formative definition of a premium cigar, that's where we can go to these negotiation tables at, you know, the state level, especially, and say, we need to carve out for specifically premium cigars. And, um, you know, about half of the states have a different, have a definition of a premium cigar and half of them don't. So we have our work cut out for us. You know, once that is finally goes through. Um, In administrations, when there is a changeover, there typically is a freeze. There's nothing out of the ordinary. This was not limited to only the two rules, um, you know, (laughs) with the the Food and Drug Administration and the Center for Tobacco Products. Um, We've had some initial conversations with uh, the staff over there, and they expect that not much is going to change and that eventually, um, you know, they will have the final rule released. This was set to be published on January 27th. So it wasn't like the, the rule was dropped. It was put into the Federal Register. Once that happens, there's 30 days where, um, Congress has the ability through the Congressional Review Act uh, to review, um, you know, the policy decisions. So um, we're still in the midst of that process until we hear otherwise. Um, you know, we, we still could have that major win of getting the definition. But, um, you know, with the court ruling, the good thing is we have the ability to have new product uh, come on onto the shelves. We have the ability uh, for new blends to um, take shape, um, so from the, the manufacturing side, that was a monumental and it provides certainty, um, you know, it's not indefinite certainty, but it provides enough regulatory certainty for the next, you know, two plus years um, for, for folks to operate in.
0: So the congressional review that you're talking about I mean what do we expect out of congress when that when this actually does go the way that it's expected what what, what are we what are we foreseeing will happen coming with, with that congressional work that congressional review is there are we expecting opposition or are we uh, are we expecting for it to be overturned what is the expectation there
1: we are not expecting that it will be overturned. We expect that it, you know, it will be go through near um, the, the form that it was released in. You know, you got to remember the S E and PMTA rules. The vast majority of it applies to vaping, e-cigarettes, cigarettes, other tobacco products. Um, and it was a, a stringent policy that, you know, went after a lot of those products and created more regulation you know, we're the exception to the rule, but we're a very small piece of those two final rules. So, um, you know, that's what the current thinking is. Um, Obviously things could change and I I don't want to pontificate too much, but from all of the intel that we received so far, um, it's expected that these two final rules will, will go into effect eventually.
0: You know, at the top of this, this this particular part of our discussion today, Josh, I was talking about how the mobile uh, in, in in years until recently, I have found the mobilization of our movement to be to be lacking in a lot of regards. And I think that also has to do with the, the not just the stigma. Right. But it also I, I feel it also has to go into the, the politics of it. You know, we talk about, you know, um, you know, when 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 President Trump was elected in 2016. This was seen as a as a huge opportunity for the premium cigar industry because typically, okay, typically the the right has been more open to uh, issues concerning our industry. But as you mentioned very clearly, and I've always said that we are a bipartisan issue. We have we have we have allies on both sides of the aisle, very loud and adv- you know, and 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 passionate a- allies on both sides of the aisle. But I think what, and, and, and I, wanna, I wanna bend to your, your expertise here, again, from my layman's perspective and my non-insider look at this, my concern isn't necessarily the election of uh, President Biden being a difficult position for the premium cigar industry for at least the next four years. The bigger concern from my perspective is that the Senate flipped to the left, um, and th- because that is a body of lawmakers, you know. While while the president can certainly issue executive orders, sign things into law, veto things, there's certainly a lot of power in there. But th- the Senate, a body of lawmakers, being in a, on the traditional side of the aisle, which is conceived to be in opposition our, of our position, what kind of opportunities and challenges do you see, for, uh, at least for the next four years?
1: Well, I think, you know, you're going to see the reintroduction of the Pallone bill, which is, um, you know, an anti-tobacco uh, piece of legislation. Um, but fortunately, the margins are, you know, razor thin in both the House and the Senate. And we do have champions um, that are Democrats that, you know, the, uh, that bill in, in discussions in the Energy and Commerce Committee, that vote's going to be a lot tighter in committee. Um, than it was last Congress. We know that to be a fact. We know that um, in the Senate, they you know, the appetite right now, they have a lot bigger issues to, to, to handle. So, um, you know, we're playing a defensive strategy um, in, in that regard uh, against things like the Pologne bill and these anti-tobacco um, bills. But um, as it relates to the administration, um, I think you're spot on. I, I, I think that you know we have to have key conversations with key groups of people. But the changeover, the va- vast majority of the Center for Tobacco Product staff and, and FDA staff are, are going to remain the same. And we've had a good working relationship, a good communications flow, especially last year with those folks. Um, we're a little bit weary of the. Um, the selection for the HHS secretary. um, His past in in California as the attorney general um, has uh, some anti-tobacco history. Uh, But, you know, if the Trump administration is any indicator of the Biden administration in this regard, the secretary of health and human services pretty much allowed the FDA and CTP to do their own work and didn't really get involved in a ton of those issues. Obviously with coronavirus, the HHS secretary has to, you know, figure out that course of action first and foremost. So um, I think we're gonna have a little bit of a pivot in our strategy from Trump to Biden in regards to our messaging. Um, Small businesses, and the American jobs were at the forefront of our talking points with the Trump administration. Um, and it was very impactful, especially you know, Pennsylvania and Florida. And that will remain a talking point for us, but pr- President Biden has a history of being involved in um, you know, countries like the DR, Honduras, Nicaragua, um, and wanting to have international stability, security, Um, and international development. So we really need to paint the picture and and put it into focus that um, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of jobs in in these countries that are a huge part of their economy. Um, You you see the issues with migration um, that, that pop up. So the national security, international development, and also the trade aspect of it. You know, th- there hasn't been, to my knowledge, and this is something that we're working on actively, and this is the li- little tidbit that i previewed in a few of the segments that we've done on PCA, but haven't really talked about it a whole lot. Um, my hope is this year to um, organize an international trade summit that focuses on the supply chain of premium cigars, the economic impact, the charitable, charitable contributions, the development in places like Nicaragua, uh, the DR and Honduras. So the totality of the industry, what does that mean from a global perspective and and putting that into focus so that, you know, at the end of the day, if regulations are increased in the United States, there are gonna be ramifications across the globe. There are going to be new issues that arise um, if those, you know, the, the main uh, importer of these products, if that's restricted, what happens to those regions in those countries and the employees and the families that depend on those jobs?
0: I think you, you, you kind of skated over it, but I think it's a, one of the biggest things is national security. Cause uh, as you mentioned, not just for president Biden's sake, but I think it should be a priority of any administration that, uh, that takes over in this country is that, you know, these are these are countries, particularly in the Nicaragua 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 and Honduras, where it would it beho- would behoove the American government to promote something that had that promotes stability in that region, um, because of you know because of I mean if, if history is any indicator right, um, so to to that point um, I wanted to and you mentioned you mentioned the HHS, um, and so it, it kind of begs the question here. Josh, you know, with 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 politics ever changing in this country and, you know, with the body of lawmakers switching from blue to red and back and forth, you know, over the years and everything, like from your perspective as a lobbyist, how, how, how I mean, this is gonna be the most, un, you know, unsophisticated way of answering this, asking this question, but how, how do you not beat your brains in? Like, how does it, how do you not get frustrated with the fact that you're in a lot of ways now with a new body of lawmakers you're having to almost start from scratch. Like how, how do you not get frustrated? How do we not get frustrated as a as, a, as, a, as
1: an industry? I mean, I, I really look at my, my role and my job as, you know, part educator, part cheerleader and part communicator. I need to, you know, educate folks as we talked about uh, before. I need to spur action. I need to get people excited about issues that are facing Uh, In the challenges that we're facing, it but also do it from a positive side. You know, I look at as any challenge is also an opportunity. Um, And then, you know, in 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 the 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 cheerleader aspect, I think is is important. You know, we have to have a a positive viewpoint as we tackle these challenges. You could beat your head and, and and get dejected about the fact that somebody doesn't know what a premium cigar is. But um, you know, the, comp- the policy sphere is so complex, there's so many issues. We're not just battling anti-tobacco groups, we're battling other industries for a seat at the table um, and, and all of the different policy discussions that are going on. And I think that um, you know, lobbying it requires a lot of patience, it lo- requires a lot of um, you know, knowing when the right time and um, you know, focusing in on, on certain aspects that um, you know, move the, move the, the chain. I, I don't think we wanna pursue something where we don't see a plausible path to victory. Um, so that um, for me has been a way to kind of keep it grounded, keep it focused and, and, and maintain a positive um, side of things. I hear bills introduced that are absolutely insane and it, you roll your eyes and then you got to come up with a plan. You don't have a ton of time to sit there and and um, get dejected about uh, something that's going in and lobbying because you have to move quickly. I mean, we've analyzed seven hundred plus bills in the past two weeks alone, and forty or fifty of them Jeez. involve premium cigars to some extent and we got to craft alerts we need to let people know you know in Missouri they're trying to ban novelty lighters in New Jersey they're trying to require retailers to sell Nicorette patches and nicotine cessation products and like we got to figure out who's going to work with us can we get a meeting and discuss this and make some concessions if not we got to get the grassroots mobilized get people fired up and get people to make phone calls and um, I think a lot of it is getting our, our members um, to make calls and those personal interactions. You know, we can send those form letters and petitions, and those are important. We want to drive up numbers because the opposition has a ton of numbers that they're throwing our way. But those, uh, a call from a brick and mortar retailer in a congressional district saying, hey, these are 10 jobs. I've been around for 80 years. I pay X, Y, and Z in taxes. We're we're the embodiment of mainstream America. Please reconsider this policy decision. It doesn't address the problems that you're trying to solve. Um, So I think by doing things like that, we can have a greater impact.
0: I was going to bring this up later, but I want to end this segment on a more positive note. So I'll bring this negative part into it. So I, I'm not going to duke it out with you like I've duked it out in the past with with Glenn Loop and Scott Pierce on this issue. Um, so if this sounds like a, a, I'm, I'm, I'm beating a dead horse or I'm, I'm giving a drive-by on this particular issue, I I, I I have a point to it. I I was vehemently um, opposed Um, to Tobacco 21. And I was very, I was very loud on this particular subject. And I was also very, no other way to say it, Josh, I was very disappointed in our industry. and, And I felt like we rolled over, felt like we rolled over on it. Now, to make lemonade out of this situation, I don't want to go back and back with back on this particular subject at this time with you, we can probably, you know, saddle that horse at some other point. But something that you said earlier kind of did present a a lemonade kind of situation. You were talking about this congressional review and how now the FDA is going to go back and do more research and do more study on the premium cigar industry. And you said that the numbers will be backed. And I actually, I actually, for the first time in a long time, agree with you on this subject because now more than ever, if they're going to go back, if they're going to actually do research on this, they're going to prove now more than ever that minors are not consuming premium tobacco because now they have even less access than they did before because the definition of a minor was it was 18 and below and now legal age has been increased therefore it it, therefore you, you the term minor shouldn't even appear in the study now so this is again making lemonade out of a terrible situation It sounds like this actually that actually might play in favor of the cigar industry with the fact that numbers will now even be more skewed in our favor than they were previous. Am I am I spot on? What do you think?
1: Well, you know, I share your sentiment, and and, you know, I look at the T21 issue. You know, there's a lot of different issues that come together on that. Um, Our our position through that. Was that it, you know youth access is the main counterpoint of any of the anti-tobacco groups, um, and we didn't want to be in the position of saying that you know youth access isn't a problem for us, and then vehemently opposing T21. Um, also, it, it was a resource scarcity issue. You know we didn't want to battle. Um, and, and we do have to battle at sometimes with Altria and, and some of the other uh, big tobacco interests. They were fully supportive out in front of it, running multi-million dollar campaigns. We can't run multi-million dollar campaigns to counteract that. Um, our position statement you know, was on the military. Um, you know, we, and I had just had a conversation with Cigars for Warriors. Um, I, I think that it's absurd, you know, personally, outside of the, the PCA hat that I wear, that, um, you know, service members can't get cigars when they're actively deployed uh, through donations from manufacturers. That's an issue that we're going to look into um, in the coming months, but also, you know, the age requirements there. I mean, we had a lot of members that are based on military Or near military bases, and telling a 19-year-old that's serving their country that they can't buy a a premium cigar—you know—that to me is is absurd. Um, You know, I talk a lot about strategy and the calculations, and we knew with Senator McConnell supporting it, we knew with Altria behind it, um, there was no way that we would have been able to win um, in, in, in fighting it. So, you know, we remain neutral. We didn't support it, we didn't oppose it as an association, we put out a statement. Um, I did get clarification um, two months ago, you know, anything beyond 21, we're actively opposing. So the Suffolk County 25, you know, the anti-tobacco groups just wanna keep moving the goalposts. And we knew that to be true. And, and I think that you're you're spot on in your assessment there. So. Um, you know, anything that goes above that. They're also taking advantage of T21 in the states because they have to get the state code to match the federal uh, law. And in doing so, they're, they're adding a grab bag of different anti-tobacco provisions that they're putting in these state T21 bills. So we're fighting against some of those. Um, an interesting point though, the T-21 federal rule was also one of the frozen rules of the Biden administration. So that was something that was frozen. Really? That wasn't released until the tail end of the Trump administration and um, is, is technically frozen. So. I'll be damned. I didn't know that. But they, the really the FDA and the, uh, when the law was passed, they should have published the rule in the Federal Register a lot sooner. And that was an argument that we made um, when the T21, right after it passed last December, um, we were like, well, we need to know compliance. What do we tell our retailers? What do we tell, um, you know, folks in terms of compliance? How do they adapt to this law? What's the signage? What is the um, you know, procedural steps that they have to take. And, you know, with COVID happening so quickly after that passage, it became, you know, the, the, the ins- inspections, you know, were frozen for a period of time. And um, it was, it was a, a bit of a cluster. I mean, you, you had a lot of confusion there. So we were, were still trying to get clarity as it relates to T21. And we're still fighting a lot of those battles at the state level
0: because here, here, here are two things. One's a personal story and one's a statistic that's very alarming when you think about T21 and you think about these battles as our opposition is pushing towards greater age. 25 seems to be something that pops up now and then with the absurd age 100 that Hawaii even proposed, right? One's a personal story. When T21 came about, I was I, I, I work in retail as a lot as my audience knows, and I had to send a kid and he's a kid to me because he's younger than me. I'm 37. Okay. So anyone younger than 30, I still call kid. Right. So, um, but here he's a man, 20 years old. I've known him for, I had known him at the time for two years and very loyal customer, very bright and really engaging thirst for knowledge. Um, just a, just a great, great individual. And I had to send him packing. I had to send him out of my door, a place that he was welcome to not a day before. And that was soul crushing. There's no other way to say it. Second point, you brought up the military, and this is something that I've always been—I've been loud on. Even though I've—I've—I've I've, I've gotten into discussions with uh, with people in our industry about, well, you—you you, you can't make a military exemption because you know it, it should be an exemption for everyone, blah blah. And I was like, and I—and I, I see that point of it. But let me just—you brought up military, so let me share a, a statistic with you. This is just the U.S. Marines. Okay, say nothing of the Air Force, Coast Guard, Army, Navy. This is just U.S. Marines. of enlisted members of the United States Marine Corps are 24 years or younger.
1: Yeah.
0: If T-25 happens, 70% of our enlisted young men and women could not be able to enjoy a legal product.
1: It's the, it begs the question too, like the standardization of ages. Like, what is what constitutes an adult? Like, there are different, you know, age of voting, age of alcohol, age of tobacco, age of gaming. Like, there's no standardization when it comes to what society and what government views as an adult. Um, And I think those inconsistencies, especially when, and I think it's a stark contrast. When you look at it, age 18, you can join, fight and die for your country, but you can't purchase a legal product. Um, I am also fearful in the uh, T21 debate as this research goes through, we got to make sure that they don't take that group from 18 to 21 and say, all of those are now youth, so are, there's a spike in youth access because those folks that were previously allowed to consume tobacco products are now youth so we have to be very vigilant of these anti-tobacco groups skewing that data and taking that three-year set and showing a spike in youth access even though it was done by you know the the legislation passed
0: Completely agree. Now, something else that happened in early 2020, it wasn't necessarily, it it was almost kind of a neutral point. Uh, It wasn't necessarily a, a defeat and it wasn't, it definitely wasn't necessarily a win for the premium cigar industry. And it was a proposal that then President Trump in February of 2020, so almost a year removed from this, proposed that perhaps a new agency should look over tobacco, taking that necessarily off of FDA's plate. And this created this created kind of a mixed reaction, I think, within the industry. They they thought that you know I think that there was a lot of frankly ignorance that this could be a this was could possibly a victory, and 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 there were a few of us that were saying no, this is this is potentially I mean it could potentially be positive, but it could also be be potentially damning when you think about it. If a new agency were to take hold of of um, regulation in the premium cigar industry that did have the resources. And manpower to be able to 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 regulate the uh, regulate the industry as the FDA had proposed to do initially. Is there any fear or concern that the Biden administration will pick up from that suggestion or that proposal and move forward with it, or do we feel like the, the FDA is 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 seemingly going to be the, uh, the 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 uh, organization that determines our fate essentially?
1: Well, there's, there's always the potential for reorganization and, and changes. I will say that it's very ha- difficult to claw back power. Um, so, you know, I don't think anybody at the FDA or the Center for Tobacco Products, um, you know, would want to change what they control right now. I think from efficiency state, the, the, the claims that were made in the Trump administration were, were like, well, we got all of these you know, pharmaceutical food products, the agency just controls uh, uh, just a vast amount of, of different territory, so to speak, in the overall, you know, regulation of human activity. Um, you know, under Biden, could it happen? Yes, but I, I mean, I, I, I don't see it. I think that there's just as many people that are advocates of that, that are opposed that even within the agency Itself, so um, you know, in, in certain agencies, you have favorable regulators. Um, you know, I, I think in the financial services sector, the National Credit Union Association, they are a favorable regulator that supports their their um, you know credit unions, and they create legislation or regulations rather. That support credit unions and, and want to see them grow and, and thrive. Um, for us, whether it's FDA and CDP or an other independent agency, we're going to have our battles no matter what. Um, you know, if it was done under the Trump administration, do we think we may have been able to get some victories? Yes, but those are temporary victories. If we had that independent agency. Um, under a different administration, it's a bigger threat. Um, it's the system that we have now is purposely designed to be slow, um, which is important because then we can have time to adapt and work through the process. But um, I, you know, I think um, you know, in the next few, few years, we're going to have our work cut out for us, no matter what our regulator is. I think the whole thought process of outright exemption and you know not being regulated, um, I don't think that that's a reality. I don't think most in, in Congress view that as a reality. We're gonna accept the fact that we're regulated, but we're gonna go to that regulator, whoever it may be and say, you know what, we have the research here, we're using your research, we're using our research. This is how we should be regulated. This is what compliance looks like. This is what giving you the information that you need looks like, but not having a burden that shuts down businesses and causes problems. Like, you know, this year, even during COVID, this past year rather, we had a net gain of new cigar retail businesses, which is astounding. Um, We also ran our numbers and only 1.2% of businesses shut down. Uh, um, you know, permanently, but 75% of them had to do a partial or full shutdown at some point. So that really speaks to the volumes of resiliency within our, you know, the premium cigar industry. So I think no matter what challenges face us from a new agency or the existing agency, we'll be able to prepare to to meet it head on and provide those facts based scientific and economic data that um, really speaks to the uniqueness of the products that we sell.
0: You mentioned new proprietors in 2020. And I take the opportunity to shout out, uh, you know, since you're a Bills fan, uh, Josh, uh, shout out to uh, Tommy Farrell, who, uh, who uh, opened up his cigar lounge, Nickel City Cigars there in Buffalo, New York. uh, The day that COVID started, I mean, pretty much when shutdowns start happening, he had his grand opening, and uh, he he's still alive and kicking. And he he made, he's, I mean, he hasn't made it through COVID. We're still certainly in the thick of it, um, but he has certainly proven successful in a very very turbulent year for for any a proprietor of any sort, uh, particularly in this industry. So, uh, shout out to to Tommy and the work that he's done at Nickel City, uh, as well as any uh, as well as the other. Uh, the other providers that you talk about with this net gain, uh, you know, our heart certainly goes out to the, the, the small percentage because no percentage was, is acceptable, but the smallest percentage that did have to close their doors permanently. Yeah. Um, one of uh, before we kind of go into some more fun topics here, Josh, I wanted to focus on, I wanted to uh, shine a light on some of the victories that, that you and the PCA and our industry had this year, you know, um, you, we, we've touched on some of the, the the neutral and some of the negatives, but I, you know, I, I, it would be remiss of us to not talk about some of the amazing victories that we've had. Um, and it all got started with the warning label decision. Um, this was something that um, the industry uh, fought, and I and I have to admit, the very beginning of this, you know, when it first started coming out, I I was concerned. I ha- I have to be honest, I was concerned as to if we were really putting our focus on a, on a very important issue. And of course I I got, I got really educated uh, on why this was such an important move. And then ultimately a very, very important victory for us. So, so again, we were, we were in front of judge Maida for this particular decision. Um, I've, I found uh, I found uh, judge Maida to be incredibly fair. He always, he hasn't always ruled in our favor. I mean, let's be honest. Um, but I think he's been very fair, um, and but this was certainly a victory, uh, a much needed victory for our our, our industry early in twenty twenty. Uh, talk about how important that that decision was, and w- ultimately what that means, what that victory means for the premium cigar industry.
1: Absolutely, it's a a, a pivotal marker for the industry. You know, our our attorneys, Michael Edney. You know, if you watch the PCA CRA town hall, you got kind of a synopsis of the warning labels and the substantial equivalence victories that, you know, transpired in the courts. And both of them are pivotal victories, you know, over the FDA um, through litigation. I think that, you know, it has a global effect, um, you know in the United States, we're challenging and we're aggressive in our advocacy. And I've talked to folks over in, in Europe and in other countries and they look and, and see, you know, we're putting up a fight to these these important issues that, you know, they move the goalposts, the opposition will move the goalposts constantly. So we have to make sure that we put a lot, draw a line in the stand and fight, um, you know, when necessary. And I think that the warning labels case uh, is important because you have plain packaging, uh, you have these uh, offensive warning labels in other countries already in, in in effect. But in the United States, we were able to push back against that. And to me, you know, the artisanal nature of a cigar box, a cigar packaging, um, that's part of the overall beauty Uh, and the craftsmanship of what makes a premium cigar. So we wanna ensure that those are protected. Um, You know, you see at the state level, they wanna have some minimum packaging requirements now. That's a a bill in New York state um, that, you know, you would have to have a minimum of five cigars purchased. You know, as you know, from from cigar sales, the single sales of, of cigars is, is incredibly important. I, I go, I buy what's new, what's local, and um, you know a tried and true cigar that I always enjoy. So I'm a, one of those single sales uh, people. Sometimes I'll buy a box here and there, but um, you know we wanna make sure that we fight for the overall industry as it relates to packaging at large. And that, that was a, a, a big victory there.
0: Certainly was, and uh, and we've kind of we've kind of danced around it all night tonight, Josh. But I mean, ultimately, the the biggest the biggest victory in our notch was what we talked about earlier, with the uh, with Judge Maida ruling in our favor and the FDA. I I say in a lot of senses realizing the error of their ways, they didn't have the infrastructure in place to be able to regulate our industry in the fa- in in the way that in which they proposed that they signed that they brought into law with with their uh, deeming regulations this was at the heart of our argument was the fact that how can a body governing or otherwise create a law without first fully understanding what they are creating a law about and our industry led by your team and your efforts proved that argument correct and judge made ultimately ruled in our favor And the FDA seemingly had to go back on their position and um, now they're going and doing more research. So again, just talk about the overall, obviously the overall importance of this incredible victory for us and what it, what it means. And I I know you've touched on some of these finer points earlier, but just kind of emphasize if you will, what this really means for our industry and why it was such a, a, a dramatic win for us.
1: Yeah, I think the cost savings alone for the industry is is huge, you know, that you're going to be able to have, you know, new products come to market, um, you know, the FDA and their decision, it was regulate first research later. And I think that that court victory in particular put a stop to that and said, you know, if you're going to, you know, cost millions of dollars and require attorneys and, um, you know, different. Reports filed and testing filed. Um, you're going to have to have the research that is substantial behind you before you go out and do something. So I think that you know providing regulatory certainty for the industry is another important win there. Um, I also believe, and we talked about it in the town hall, that it was litigation and the legal team working together with advocacy and lobbying. You know, at at one point we had. You know se- several different conversations going on with the different agencies, with the White House, um, as well in the courts, and we wanted to make sure that, as important of an issue and the costs that would be incurred, had the Substantial Equivalence Rule gone into effect for premium cigars and or PMTAs, um, how important that was, we needed to make sure that we were pulling every level lever and. Um, leaving no stone unturned so um i think that coming together the two associations the principals, the volunteer leadership um you know we don't give enough credit to uh, the executive committee of, of pca and, and cra and and the board of directors for the work that they do in that that front and um you know they were in instrumental in those victories and you know we did court prep, we did meeting prep, we did um, all, all of these different things. The timeline in fighting the substantial equivalence rule had many different you know, markers in it. And we have stuff through that lobbying and through that litigation that we can use for future victories uh, should we challenge the FDA again. Um, and um, you know, it, it really puts them on their toes. The draft guidance saying that premium cigars are the lowest enforcement priority. That's going to be something that I'm going to continually use over the course of the next four years um, to ensure that that message is heard loud and clear. That is an effect of lobbying on substantial equivalence. And we built a coalition. um, You know, I I talk about the folks that don't know what a premium cigar is, but there are hundreds, hundreds of members of Congress uh, and, and state Um, lawmakers that do know what a premium cigar is. And we have a very diverse coalition of people that will help carry that message. And to have the two court victories last year um, as rallying points for future victories is important. You know, right now, and and it's, we, we have to continue to ensure that the FDA is operating within its Charter, so to speak, or it, it, the the round that it should be doing and it follows things, you know, where are the user fees going, where are the Center for Tobacco products spending their resources. Um, we have members of Congress that want to know. So they're going to, you know, reach out and, uh, you know, in the appropriate committee and say, where are you spending this money, Where where's it going, you're talking about raising fees, you're talking about um, You know uh the the user fees i think the vast majority of user fees right now that are paid by premium cigars uh are going to process pmtas for vaping products that seems absurd so there are a lot of things and discussions that are going to take place over the course of the next few months of you know what what do we attack next um, and um, how do we, you know, continue to make sure that this substantial equivalence process, as they undergo the research, um, confirms everything that we, we've been saying for a number of years?
0: I, you've mentioned it a couple of times tonight. I do, I do want to, I do want to level a nitpick at you, if you don't mind. While sure. um, well, I found the town hall to be incredibly informational, and ultimately very positive for the industry. It was great to hear the voices uh, uh, of our industry leaders to, to speak on subjects and to kind of tell us what's going on and give us updates and information. Um, again, this is a nitpick. Can we not call it a town hall anymore? Because uh, that, that's not a town hall. <laughs> town hall is a, a Q&A session from where a panel or a speaker can actually take questions from, there were like two questions at the end of it. Uh, Total nitpick on my part, but can we call it something else going
1: forward? I get it, and um, you know, we did conduct a, a, a large number of actual town halls with members of Congress. If you recall, we did the series with you know PCA. I, I get your point. Um, I think for the um, you know government affairs updates that we do, we try and get as many questions. You know, folks submit them in the chat box and. You know, I, I think it, that was we want to get as many people together as possible and, and really an all industry meeting uh-huh. uh, where, where we have you know, the, the, the folks come together and talk about some of the major issues. But I, I definitely get your, your point. It's a little bit of a, a, a marketing thing where we wanted to make sure that people recognize that we have all of the leading voices, all the people that were part of the process together more of a presentation than a town
0: hall. Absolutely. And like I said, very, very positive event for sure. Like I, I found it incredibly informational. And like I said, anytime that you get to hear industry leaders, everyone from, you know, everyone from John Anderson to Carlito Fuente, Rocky Patel, other folks, you know, just leaders in our industry to, to give us an update and give information was, is it was a, it was a very positive experience. I was just kind of, uh, like I said, just if, permit me on the nitpick uh, of what it's uh, the town hall. So, um, but you've, we kind of go into, uh, before we go into this fun part here, I I do want to recognize a a, a truly fabulous feat on your part here, Josh. Um, You, uh, and this is is in no short order, the Hill um, puts together a list each year for the top lobbyists in Washington, DC and this is, uh, now, if you look at this list, it seems pretty large. But when you consider <laughs> the vast number of lobbies that are being represented on the Hill, no pun intended, uh, that are being represented uh, to, our, to our government's bodies of lawmakers, Congress, Senate, the White House, etc., it's a, I mean, it is a seemingly infinite list. And you were recognized Uh, is 2020 by the the Hills publication as one of the top lobbyists for your work with the premium cigar association. What an incredible honor. Now this isn't your first time you've actually been named the top lobbyist uh, before, um, before you were a part of this industry. Um, I really want to give you a second to talk about this accolade a little bit, brag about yourself here a little bit, talk about this accolade, but why this particular list is so important important that we are being recognized by it. You in particular.
1: I think it's funny. The, the list itself, if you look and go on the list and you see the different comments down there, everybody is talking crap about lobbyists and how it's bad. So it's it's kind of a funny thing. It's a great honor. I mean, the, the Hill publication is, is, is fantastic. You know, I, I was really glad this year, because I was recognized in direct lobbying for the first time. But also for you know PCA, being that it's a tobacco industry, you never know that they might not want to recognize individuals in, in you know the sin industry, so to speak. Um, so you know, I, I was happy to bring that victory, but you know, th- it really is a, a, a team effort, you know, the work that we did. I think it was through some challenging times through um, you know all of the budget constraints, all of the COVID restrictions, but at any point we never stopped. We never stopped in government affairs. We were constantly moving. We were constantly putting information. Um, I'm most proud of the work that we did with the PPP, um, getting those reforms. Um, I think, by and large, we focus a lot on the the tobacco issues which we have to, you know, the, the mainstream tobacco issues and the, the, the bills and the court cases. But a lot of the things that we did on the retail side and helping small businesses, um, especially early on in the year, I mean, we we're getting information out there um, quicker than major associations that have budgets that are a hundred times bigger than ours and a hundred times more staff than we have. Um, so that, to me, was the biggest victory of, of, of last year, knowing that our members got the resources that they needed to stay open before others did. Um, uh, and I think that, you know, our, our team did very well in, in that. Um, Scott really, I love working for Scott and John because they give me the opportunity to keep this creative personality and kind of quirky, eccentric Um, you know, persona, but explain to our members and really work with them to develop policy. So, you know, we're doing more in, I mentioned the trade space, we're doing more in the retail space. Our playbook increased tenfold over the course of the year. Um, So, you know, it's always nice to get recognized uh, and it, in this industry in particular, I was really proud. I do wish that they rank the lobbyists in terms <laughs> of because I want to be higher than Matt Myers. That he's on that list too. He so. is
0: on that list. That's true. <laughs> but I. I but to that point Josh I think it is an incredible feat that that two members of such drastic opposition of each other can be recognized by recognized for their lobbying efforts and be in, in that regard so I, and I you know it was pointed out to me by director Pierce himself how how crucial this list is not just because of the honor that it is uh, for you specifically but it also speaks to the invaluable relationships that you have on both sides of the aisle this isn't like you, you know like you said there are there are several several lobbies represented on this list and some would say okay well that's drastically a left issue that's drastically a right issue very partisan uh, but it also it, it's not about the issue or the issues being represented it's the person in this case you and how respected you are for from from members of both sides of the aisle, and I think that's I, I think that that's incredibly bodes incredibly well for our future, uh, with you in the position that you're in.
1: Yeah, and I, I hope my only hope with the list, and you know, as these victories we we keep on the trajectory that we're at, that I gain the confidence and respect of our membership. To me, that is the most focal you know focal point of my career. Like. The peers in DC and the lobbyists and the members of Congress and the media, you know, the political media here, that's great and all, but I want our members to know that I'm doing everything in my power to take the skills and the lobbying background that I have, but also learn a lot about premium cigars. As I mentioned, since I was 18, you know, at the time it was the, the age I've been a cigar enthusiast. That has been my passion. I am me fortunate well. to, you know, have this role where I get to interact people with people that were my idols. I read cigar aficionado, you know, going back a decade, and I saw the folks and now getting to work with them on a daily basis, um, you know, it, it is a dream. So I, I just want to make sure that they have the confidence in me that I can represent them at the White House and Capitol Hill and state capitals. And, and really defend and advance this industry. So um, I think that that is kind of the result of, of that that helps towards that goal, but we still have a lot to do. We still have a lot of um, folks to, to win over and show that you know in, in their states or you know the issues individual issues that affect our members, um, we, we got to make sure that it, it's a constituent services process. I need to respond quickly to, uh, the folks and our team needs to respond quickly and work towards those issues across the board.
0: Well, congratulations, Josh. Well, 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 well deserved, and uh, what a great honor for you and for our industry to be represented on that list. And here's to here's to many years in the future where you can consecutively appear on it. That's my hope, and and I know yours as well. So, uh, so thank you for that. Um, so, um, I, I want to kind of kick off this next thing. This is where we kind of have a little fun now and we get to we've been talking a little pretty serious for the last uh you know a little over the last hour but I want to talk about uh our our featured uh our featured segment here which is always brought to you by United Cigars United me smoke but one must go uh it's our one must go segment it's always brought to you by United Cigars featuring La giana Havana and distributors of Jose Dominguez Vandalero Garoflo and the highly acclaimed Adabate and Byron line so smoke one today and start living united now Josh, we talked about this a little bit before the show. And as my audience knows, this is one of our more fun segments. Um, and I, I usually try to carve it around my guest. And uh, I've obviously gotten to know you a little bit more over our time together tonight, but I didn't know you very well or at all. Let's be frank. Uh, other than what your role is with PCA. Um, I do have, uh, I'm, I'm fortunate to say that I have a, a, a pretty good relationship with uh, director Pierce and I, uh, I felt terrible today. I actually called him because I wanted some insight for this particular segment. And uh, I felt terrible because I could hear kids in the background. I'm like, oh, gosh, man, I'm already bother- I'm already bugging you. I said, hey, listen, you know, the one must go segment. And he's like, absolutely. He's like, yeah, we did it over food last time. And I said, yeah, well, I want to do something for Josh, but I want to do something. And I said, I, I got to be honest, I-, I don't know him very well. And he said and he thought about it. He gave me some insights. And and then he texted me uh, after we ended our call. And he's like, no, you have to do this. And I said, awesome. okay." So you, you've, you mentioned a couple of times how, you know, your quirk, your quirkiness, your, you know, your, your tendency to stand out and be very unique uh, uh, when it comes to personal style the hats we talked about and everything. So, um, so I wanted to, uh, I'm gonna take a cue from Scott on this. And uh, so I wanted to pose a one must go segment. So I happen to be, uh, well, people may not realize this about me, I happen to be a lover of these things I'm gonna mention too. So I'm actually gonna participate as well, but I think it's gonna be a much more difficult decision for you. So one must go, now this is just for fun. You're obviously not gonna, you're gonna keep your, your style the way that it is and everything. So here, here we go. So here are your choices. Hats, your suits, or your watches. One must go. Now, what is it going to be?
1: Oh man, I would say suits. The suits would have to go.
0: Oh wow, really quick, really quick answer from you. Okay, let's hear. It. Why, why, why the suits? Why, why do the suits have to go out of that list?
1: I, I think I could do a a, a war, new wardrobe overhaul. And uh, I, you know, with COVID and stuff, nobody wears suits anymore. I'm like the only person that wears suits now. And I, I, I'm, I'm in the office pretty much five days a week. And, you know, I have some meetings and that, but I usually wear a suit, but I'm, I'm the only one. So I, I think that that's pretty easy. Um, I love the accessories I, we talked about that. I mean, hats. And then my, my watch is that that's a guilty pleasure. I, you know, I should have paid my student loans, but instead I, I, I buy one. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's one of those things. It uh, should have paid
0: mine, but I'm smoking my student loan payment yeah, right here. It. So, <laughs> so suits, so suits have to go. Okay. So, I, I, I actually tend to, I actually really enjoy suits as well. Um, you know, I don't, uh, I'm, you know, I, a couple years ago, a few years ago, I actually started in a new, uh, started a new position and before I worked in the insurance field. And so I wore a suit every day or at least a shirt and tie. And, uh, it was something I enjoyed, you know, and, uh, I, I liked dressing up every day, but I, I work in a more casual environment now and certainly more casual now that I'm working from home. Um, but, um, I, I, I never thought that I would say the day like that um, and and I have a, a, a small, very small collection of watches, nothing like some of the folks in the industry and yourself included in that, um, but I, I enjoy watches as well but I am I am an accessories guy, the, the suit would, the suit is something that, if you asked me about five years ago I probably would have kept the suit and I probably would have ditched the watches, but I think that, uh, I think that uh, the hat's always going to stay that's never going to go. Um, but I, I think that, that the suit has kind of been something that was comfortable leaving in the closet,
1: so to speak. I actually have a, a reproduction of the notorious Conor McGregor suit too, the pinstripe with the expletive on it. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I, ha- I have one of those and that usually for Halloween or, or something like that, that that may have an appearance in that. So it's a eclectic style, My uh, a good friend of mine uh, owns a, a clothing company and, and will design these off the wall things. I'll, it, it, I almost look at it like artwork. So uh, we, you know, people talk about like money and politics and like how it's, you know, I, I'm a big fan of satire and that, that kind of really is where my Instagram handle, the wolf of K street comes from. It's the satire. Of what, what are atypical lobbyists? What do, what do they think of or typical lobbyists? And uh, so one of the suits that I have actually is the money in politics thing, and it's lined with Monopoly money in the interior of it. So that's funny.
0: That is cool. I really like that. Yeah. So you mentioned your IG handle, the Wolf of K Street. I mean, so I mean, for those people that the reference might be lost, obviously, it's a playoff of the Wolf of Wall Street, the the infamous film that came out a few years ago. Um, But like, what, what was the you know, what, what is the impetus or the, the, the meaning behind that for people who might be not in the know? Like, why are you the wolf of K street?
1: So it was complete satire. You know, I, I, like I got the, the handle and I've had it for a while now and I wanted something that stood out and like people now I had, uh, I had a cigar box or cigar box at a lounge before I had this job and it had Wolf of K Street and people would that became a, a nickname and um you know the the movie's obviously hilarious and kind of kind of wild and crazy but um you know the whole K Street that's where you know the central uh area of, of lobbying takes place and um you know when you have somebody that's eclectic and out there like I, I'm I'm all about that stuff I want I want to be memorable in, in, in some way. And that was another, uh, you know, tool, tool to do that. Awesome.
0: Yeah. Well, that was, uh, that was our, you one must go segment. And as always, it's brought to you by United cigars, uh, smoke one today and start living United. And as always, they are the, uh, the They are featuring the Lagiana Havana and distributors of Jose Dominguez, Brandolero, Garofalo, and the highly acclaimed Atabay and Byron Lines. So, again, smoke one today and start living united. So, uh, Josh is ditching the suits. Ditching the suits. All right. Which means the hats are just going to get that much more insane, which is oh, awesome.
1: Absolutely. absolutely.
0: <laughs> so, um this kind of goes into uh, another new segment that we've done. I introduced it on my birthday just a few months ago, and it's been it's been really it's been really terrific. And um, I have to say, I'm I'm really excited tonight about discussing this particular one. Now, I'm going to introduce it, Josh, and I am going to step away for a second. And I would love for you to elaborate for our, our audience on why you decided to pick the organization that you or the the cause that you decided to pick tonight. So I posed this question to you, and you went back and forth on a keppel, but you settled on this one in particular, and I couldn't be more thrilled about it, because I'm so excited about the work that's being done. Um, so uh, for people who who may be familiar with uh, with uh, Barstool Sports, uh, Dave Portnoy uh, is the uh, this the the founder and CEO of Barstool Sports, and uh, he's actually uh, in in recent months has actually gained a lot of uh, you know he's kind of been kind of at the forefront in some you know in, in in a lot of political circles um been subject to uh been subject to a little bit of uh the spotlight a little bit but i have to say that it's it's really exciting because uh he launched just this a little over a month ago so this was december 17th he launched the the barstool small business fund okay and uh, I'm going to put the link in the in the in the in the the chat here in a second. It'll be in the show notes later on as well, where you guys can or we encourage you guys to contribute to the fund. But this is an exciting cause because Dave Portnoy and the folks over at Barstool are launching this launched this initiative to support uh, small businesses that have been affected by 2020 and of course the pandemic. Um, this is incredibly important because small business as we know is the very heart of pca and the very heart uh and not to be over dramatic of the american fabric you know it's i mean small businesses i mean how more american can you get and so for uh, for portnoy and the folks over at barstool to launch this initiative has been incredible great i want to show to so share some numbers and then i want you to share why this was so important to you and why you ultimately picked this josh so December 17th was when he launched this. So five days ago, it was, uh, it was published that this fund had received, um, had topped $20 million in support. $20 million in contributions had been made to the Barstool Fund for Small Businesses. And three days ago, they hit 30 million. In just two days, 10 million additional dollars was raised. Now, this is gonna be a $30 million, unf- great large number, great effort, drop in the bucket to what will be needed when we do recover finally from, from COVID, specifically for small businesses. But what an incredible feat by this fund. And I'm really excited and I want my audience to hear why you chose um, this particular effort.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, small businesses, as you mentioned, are are the lifeblood of the American economy. Um, You know, PCA members are are all, you know, small businesses in the retail side. And it's uh, it's a a, a fund that I think is doing a lot of good. It's helping from pizzerias to barber shops, Um, you know, folks kind of sustain through um, the The challenges uh, uh, that COVID has presented. So I'm I'm proud to support it. I'm a big fan of Dave Portnoy and Barstool Sports. Um, you know, Dave, Dave is a cigar smoker. Uh, you'll often see him smoking a cigar on, on, on different segments. Um, so, you know, I think it's a, a charity that aligns with a lot. I'm also, as I, I mentioned, a, a small business owner. Um, so I, I think that You know right now there's a lot of small businesses that are truly struggling they're trying to keep their employees keep food on the table uh you know for 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 folks so uh i hope that everybody will consider contributing i'm i'm going to get the the full uh group of people in erie pennsylvania to make sure that they donate to the barstool fund um, as well as making a, a a personal contribution um i i really like the the fact that uh That you're doing this um, for different charities, you know. There's so many in the cigar industry that are are doing great work, um, but wanted to get one that hasn't been featured on the show before, and um, uh, and one that is tied to small businesses uh, uh, that folks will consider contributing.
0: I certainly hope so because I this this is an incredible effort and this has also been um, this has been backed by some pretty large celebrities um, have, have generated a lot of money in fact I mean some of the interest I mean, unfortunately for me, he uh, claimed a great victory tonight over my team but Tom Brady uh, was really excited about this effort and has, uh, has has pledged money to this effort but I mean other folks uh, such as uh, Guy Fieri. Um, And Kid Rock, uh, uh, you know, with with huge contributions, Tom Brady as well. Um, But 90 small businesses have already been helped, were helped when, you know, the the $20 million mark was hit just a few days ago. And then $30 million uh, now. And it's just growing and growing and hopefully we can raise some money tonight uh for what an effort and uh as always is my pledge uh josh i i always pledge to donate and uh to uh, uh to every uh to every cause that uh, that's being mentioned on my show and uh I, tonight will be no smaller so in your honor tonight i'll be donating a very meager sum compared to the folks of tom brady fiedi and kid rock but uh but at least I will uh, we'll be helping out some small business owners like uh, like the great retailers that represent our industry. So uh, in your honor tonight, I'll be I'll be donating. Uh, i be donating uh, some money that way. So uh, thank you for bringing this to our attention. Really, really excited uh, for the Barstool Small Business Fund and, and the efforts that uh, Portnoy and Company has been
1: uh, been putting together. Thank you, Vera. I think that this is great. I'm glad that you included this as, as part of your show and the different, you know, charities that you're supporting. Aaron Rodgers did give $500,000. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know who gave more, Brady or, or Rogers, but they both did good work with this.
0: Well, I, I think it's only fair that since he uh, claimed victory over Rodgers today, that uh, that Tom Brady give an additional amount matching Rodgers' donation. I think that's only fair. I think we should. I think we should ask that of of Tom. Start
1: a, start a petition, right? Get the grassroots going.
0: Right here, right now. I got the grassroots expert sitting across from me. I mean, let's let's do it, man. Let's get, let's get, uh, let's get old Tom on board here. Just match Rogers' effort there. What, I mean, what, I mean, just what a great cause. Um, I mean, really, really excited uh, for what, um, you know, what this cause will do for, for our industry specifically. But I mean, there's so many small businesses that have been affected, will be, continue to be affected by this. The, the restaurant industry, which you are now a part of too, I mean, has just taken a huge hit. What what's what's taco rock done? Like, how have they adjusted? How have they, you know, um, kind of bent to uh, to the world of COVID? How what are some of the efforts there in, in in your in your small world there?
1: So I mean, we've been fortunate. We've been it's been a new concept. It's been a, you know trendy concept. We you know create the chefs who are you know have a ton of experience create dishes that are meant for Instagram, social media sharing. And we got a lot of buzz around our, our, our first location. So we just two weeks ago opened our second location. So we're, you know, 60 to 70 employees now between the two locations, you know, looking for a third one, um, you know, carry out delivery pickup. Those are, um, you know, really what has sustained us through, through it. Um, you know, there is in Virginia. You do have um, reduced capacity in dining. We wanted to make sure that we're on the forefront of, um, you know, sanitation and cleanliness. So um, for for us, we've been fortunate. Unfortunately, a lot of businesses, you know, the, the sit-down restaurants, the fine dining establishments, the mom-and-pop, you know, steak, seafood, pasta places all across the DMV and, you know, DC, Virginia, and Maryland have been hit very hard. Um, so, you know, we've been able to weather the storm for the most part. Um, but our goal is to, you know, continue to grow, to continue to provide more jobs. Um, and, um, you know, we're, we've been very grateful for our supportive customer base. Um, I, I love, like I said, I love the food and, um, the tequila drinks are not too bad either. So if uh, you're ever in the uh, the D.C. area, my, my treat for some taco and uh, tequila.
0: Will not turn you down, sir. I love me some tequila and I love me some tacos. So absolutely. So I, you know, I have you? So in Texas, we were able to uh, restaurants were able to actually, um, for the first time ever, able to actually sell to go um you know alcoholic beverages and 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 some of these some of these establishments have even gone so far as to sell like you know gallons so like you know like uh margarita kits or mimosa kits and you know you know mini kegs for beers and some breweries and stuff um what's that like been in the dmv have you guys been able to do that or y'all because you mentioned tequila specifically so i'm, I'm just kind of interested in...
1: yeah we we have been and um during the summer months we actually had a pop-up bar outside um, and we did reduced capacity like uh, salsa dancing. So we had events every Sunday, there were salsa dancing and people could get a drink and, and stay outside. Um, and, um, you know, that was kind of a cool concept, uh, but we did have to go drinks. We have some really neat um, cocktails with like, Uh, Elvis, Jimi Hendrix, Marilyn Monroe that have like wafers on them so you have their pictures we really kind of embrace the rock concept we have a guitar in the ceiling and if you go in there you're going to see videos on loop of different rock music videos so it it really is pretty cool. It is awesome so
0: how did how did you get involved with you said you're a silent partner you mentioned that already. Where, like, is this personal connections or was were you approached through like, a, uh, you know, a, you know a, a business associate or like, how, how did you become involved uh, in the restaurant industry?
1: So it was really, um, you know, I was hosting events through, you know, networking, grassroots, and I just knew a lot of people in the area. And um, it was one of those things where I had uh, a very close friend that owned two restaurants. And I'm like, hey man, if something ever comes up, I'd love to get involved. I, I want a spot where I can bring my friends and, you know, kind of kick back and relax. And, um, you know, it, it came up. This was an opportunity. I mean, we have plans to build twelve in the next three years. So, oh my, definitely something that we want to grow and make a local chain a, a staple of the area. Um, and it's been fun learning uh, learning process all along the way but it was by accident, just knowing a lot of people. And like, you know, I send folks there, you know catering for for different events, um, you know through the nonprofit that I'm involved in. I mean, we just, you know, the network, if you network in DC, you'll be successful in ways that you don't even know are, are possible.
0: Speaking of networking, and we, we already talked about your your work that led to you being named on the Hills uh, top lobbyist list uh, twice now. So two, if correct me if I'm mistaken, 2019 with previous organization and 2020 with PCA. Is that correct?
1: So three total. I got it uh, two years for grassroots before this. This was the third third year.
0: Oh, great. Well, oh, so three fantastic. you, so I sold you short, Josh, forgive me. I'm so sorry about that.
1: I got the trifecta now. Now it's I got to do six years, you know, like, like the Michael Jordan story.
0: <laughs> there you go. Well, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned your desire to see a ranking, you know, um, going forward, you, you you should probably, you know, you, I know that you've, you're, pub- you're published on the Hill as well. Uh, uh, the publication. And uh, so you should probably, you should, you should use your connections, use your networking to get that, that ranking going so you can get ahead of uh, Mr. Myers.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um,
0: so, and again, speaking of networking. So, and we've, we talked a little bit about your resume at the top of the show. And, and I, I kind of want to get back to it for a second because you, you, you have a very impressive uh, academic resume as well. You know, as you mentioned, you're an adjunct professor at uh, George Washington University. You are a former adjunct professor at West Virginia, um, and um, in, in political science specifically, or is, is it is it more specific than the general subject of political science?
1: It was communications at West Virginia University, and at uh, GW, I teach state government affairs and lobbying.
0: So I'm, I'm interested to hear, you, 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 you used the term earlier, sin industry, right? and you know i i'll give a personal uh, a personal story on this and, and 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 i want to hear your points on this so um i i happen to be a religious individual i, I attend church and um and i've I'm, I'm involved in my i'm involved in my church and uh and my uh the associate pr- uh, pastor f- uh, for for youth ministries has for years been pushing me to, to, to volunteer my time and become, you know, part of, of the youth ministry effort there. And I've, I've always been resistant to it. Uh, Not because I I don't, I want to, I believe in youth ministry. I love working with kids. My opposition to being wanting to volunteer my time was I didn't feel that parents would appreciate my pastime and what I do for a quasi living uh, and what, you know, what dominates my spare time, you know. And he he assured me time and time again. And he he finally we finally had a very serious discussion about it where he's like, "Bear, I, I have your back. Uh, I don't think it'll be an issue at all. And um, and you know if anyone has a problem with it, they can they can talk to me." And I said, "I well, I don't even want that to happen." He says, "Well, it may or may not, but I've got your back on it." And uh, that meant the world to me personally. Um, so to that point, you have students what what influence um like what influence or what f- do you have do you have any similar fear or anything considering the, the the position that you hold at pca in terms of that like the the stigma or are you open with your students or it you know i mean it's free to find out i mean all anyone has to do is look up at your linkedin page and they'll they'll see what you do for a living but I mean, are you open with your students or did, did, have you received any opposition in, the, in your role as a professor?
1: No, I, if anything, it's been, you know, we basically wanna create a safe space for our students where we can have substantive debates. You know, folks aren't gonna agree with my position. Um, I co-teach the course and the ironic um, part about this course in particular, and it's the third, third semester that I'm teaching it, The co professor with me used to work for the American Cancer Society. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So it really is people learning about the issues, learning how to advocate, learning how to lobby. Um, And, uh, you know, I tell my students that, then they're graduate students at this level at the Graduate School of Political Management, um, that I view them as consultants and I'm the client. Their work product should be ready to go as if it were in the real world. Their assignments are everything that, um, you know, should be something that they could use to get a job in the future or get a a promotion in the future. Um, So we really try and test them and prepare them for the real world. Um, And I have the beauty of working, you know, full-time for an association that has an abundance of case studies, whether it's the state lobbying or federal, um, so I think students are appreciative that they can, you know, especially when, you know, T21 was going on, um, you know, when a lot of the issues around vaping were going on, um, those discussions were very hearty, and, you know, I, I get challenged by my students, but we've never had an issue where it's like, I'm not preaching to them that they need to believe this, but, um, you know, I, I truly believe in what I represent and and for The the first time in my career of any of the places that I work with I have not only a a belief in that I have a passion for it. I'm here to defend this I'm here to defend it in long term. um, And I can only hope that my students find something that they're passionate enough about that they'll work to defend that um, when they uh, enter the career world.
0: So We talked about this before the show when we were talking about your appearance tonight, and I was really excited to hear about this experience from you. Um, And you actually recently took a trip to Nicaragua. Um, I smoked uh, Luciano the Dreamer um, a moment ago, and then I've moved on to uh, the Pichardo uh, San Andreas. That's what I'm smoking now um so you got to spend some time with luciano Mireles and the uh tabaculera Pichardo there in nicaragua uh, just a few weeks ago actually and uh so i i would love for you to just uh you know share a little bit about your trip to nicaragua first of all what, what why were you there and uh like what what were some of the uh, what were some of the experiences like for sure
1: uh you know couple couple reasons why i was there um number one, I want to know and learn as much about the industry. Like I said, I plan to have this as a long-term career. Um, I love the industry. I'm passionate about it. Um, You know, I know the lobbying side having done it for a decade plus, but I want to know the ins and outs of the cigar process from supply chain to trade, to manufacturing, to retail, to consumer. Um, So, you know, COVID presented some learning opportunities where, you know, I had the opportunity to launch with Scott and Aaron, the interview series where we interviewed a lot of folks and asked questions. Um, I took the um, certificate course um, uh, that Jorge Armateros does on um, Tobacconist University, Um, you know, read a, a lot of different things, but I've been trying to connect with folks in the industry, listen to their story, I also in the midst of the pandemic, visited 50 plus retail locations last year and met with the proprietors. And I plan on doing the same thing this year uh, as well. Actually Friday, I will be in Philadelphia and Wilmington, uh, Delaware meeting with different retailers. And there's nothing more impactful than a personal conversation. I take back with, with me things that Um, you know, to the office that I can address and work with my team and our team to um, make sure that we're following through on There's issues that we don't hear about unless you're having those conversations. So Nicaragua for me was a networking opportunity and a learning experience. Luciano um, is one of my favorite people in the industry. He took uh, an abundance of time to teach me everything. I mean, we did bunching lessons, rolling lessons, fermentation lessons in the fields. He took me to seven factories, three farms. Um, We had a meeting with the Nicaraguan Chamber of Tobacco representatives from there, um, trying to build an inroads to promote, um, as as I mentioned, you know, Nicaragua is one of the leading countries uh, for premium cigars. We wanna make sure that the Biden administration understands that. As I mentioned, that's going to be part of our core argument. So it was part learning, part building bridges with the folks that are there. Um, and then looking at the the full landscape, um, I had been to, you know, the J.C. Newman factory. Um, had a great tour with Eric for three hours plus um, during the Cigar Heritage Festival last year. But I know
0: El, El rahol or like Pensa or what? El rahol Oh, Yeah great place.
1: Oh my gosh. Beautiful. And um I, I mean the trip was amazing. I got a lot out of it and I'm I don't speak any Spanish. So, uh Luciano and his daughter were translators. You know, they drove all over Halapa. I mean the photos that I posted uh Luciano and I were smoking cigars in the old Spanish fort in Granada. And then took a boat tour, and we had monkeys jumping in the boat. I mean, it was a <laughs> blast all, all over. Um, and then we also, you know, Luciano was one of the folks that uh, sponsored the PCA um, fundraiser in October, and we started having conversations. Um, one of the really cool parts about this trip, and we perfected the blend. We're starting to work on the bands. But for conversations like this that we're having, um, as well as the meetings that I take daily when I go to the retailers, I wanted to have a cigar that you know, matched my personality, my palette, my profile as a, a presentation and a gift uh, to folks. So um, Luciano and Picciardo put together a blend, which you know, there'll they'll be more about this uh, probably next month. Uh, but I ordered um, 3,000 of them to give as a gift to the people that I meet throughout the years um, in this role as, you know, this this is who I am. I hope you you try it. You know, just think of how many cigar swaps that you do uh, with folks, but there's, you know, the backstory of it, it we'll, we'll talk a little about more uh, at a later date, but, you know, previewing that, I'm, I'm smoking it right now. Um, it, i I love it. I, I brought 40 samples back and I, uh, my closest friends, the folks that watched the the fight with me yesterday, got to sample them and everybody's been enjoying them so far. And I, I mean, that part of the process was really cool too, that, you know, there's going to be a, a band with my, and I'm paying for, for this personally. It's not a, a, a PCA project. Um, it's something that, um, will be a gift. These are not going to be sold. You know, they're, they're limited to, uh, uh, the batch that
0: we're ordering. Well, hopefully I'll get to experience uh, trying that, Josh. I'm kind of excited about it.
1: I will send you one, Bear, for sure. Awesome. So,
0: uh, I mean, can you tell us anything about the the blend, perhaps? Scott was mentioning to me when I was talking to him about it, he, he mentioned that it was definitely more towards your your palate range. Well, you you, you you tend to favor a little bit more of the bold, from my understanding?
1: Yep. I, I love bold, uh, bold taste, earthy. I, I mean, uh, Nicaraguan tobacco. I, I I mean, I love Dominican and Honduran tobacco as well, but I smoke traditionally smoke um, more Nicaraguan. Um, I smoke a lot of the, the stuff that uh, Luciano produces, but also Placencia and Padrone. Um, so you know, when I was talking about what type of cigars, you know, he was asking what do I typically smoke, and um, the only change that we made while we were down there, I mean they nailed exactly what I was looking for. We just changed the ring gauge from 48 to 52, because again, this is a presentation cigar and it makes it a little bit lighter. It's still bold and packs a punch. Um, But um, I I feel as though that, you know, if you're only an occasional cigar smoker, you'll enjoy this, it won't be too strong. Um, But I mean, Scott knows I'm, I'm a three to five cigar smoker pretty much daily or every other day. And I will have the cojone in the morning, the tatawahi cojone at 8 a.m. So like, I, oh, I wow. want to want punch.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. So Luciano has been actually following us tonight and he's been in the chat and he actually uh, pro- he had, uh, pushed me to ask you about your experience in Yalapa. So, I think you mentioned a little bit of already. So, to go into detail about that, is this when, is that where you were in the fields with him, uh, the, some of those pictures, or tell us a little bit about that experience?
1: Yeah, it was really cool. We were right near the, the Honduran border. And I mean, I, I asked Luciano probably hundreds of questions a day and like we'd go into their fermentation barns. And, um, you know, Luciano is also doing great work in the communities down there and building his business that supports jobs, but also supports the quality of life. Um, We had the opportunity to go to some impoverished areas and uh, provide some food and supplies to folks there. You know, um, Nicaragua with a lot of the natural disasters is is still recovering. Um, But, you know, the the work that they're doing in Pichardo, even though there was the language barrier with Pichardo, the utmost hospitality um, and um, it was a blast just meeting all the different folks that work in the factories. Uh, but in Jalapa, in particular, it was good to see that you know th- they're building um, their business and actually positively impacting the community. That's something that you know transcends back to here in the United States, where I can say, within full faith and confidence, that you know the cigar industry is improving the quality of life of folks um, in other countries and, um, you know, providing jobs, providing, you know, m- you know, medicine and, and and necessary supplies. So, you know, you see the luxury side of premium cigars and, the, you know, the accessories and, and that's great. And I love that, but you also see the side of it where um, you know, there is a lot of poverty in these regions and a lot of these companies are, you know, stepping up and, and, and really developing the areas, which, which is good to see. Um, also in, in Jalapa, um, you know, just the tobacco and, and seeing just fields of tobacco and, and then, you know, we went to Pueblo Nova, or Norova, I'm, I'm pronouncing it wrong. I, I apologize, but, um. To seeing those those different things in the barns and the you know just smelling tobacco, the photo uh, uh, that I posted of, of Luciano and and I just smelling the tobacco, um, that that will forever be a, a, a great memory. And and just sampling the different tobaccos too. And I mean I I was at probably ten to fifteen cigars a day that trip, not full cigars, but. Um, it was, it was just a fascinating experience and I'm forever grateful to Luciano and, and, and Pachardo. And I mean, for anyone that truly, you know, I, I said it on the PCA broadcast that we did live from Nicaragua at, at the factory and kind of showed and opened up the, um, the hood of the um, cigar industry of like, this is exactly what happens in the process. I, you don't see too many of those productions from from soup to nuts and Luciano gave you know great access to that um, and and um, I, I think that those lessons learned I'll carry for many years to come in this role um, for for PCA and as kind of this ambassador for the cigar industry before you know different governments and elected officials.
0: I want to talk a little bit more about Luciano in a second, but I I, I had to point out, I commented on one of those photos today because I, I, I thought it was interesting. Um, in one of the photos, you're, you're sporting uh, your alma mater, Georgetown. Uh, and I, I said that that has to be the first time I've ever seen someone in the middle of a tobacco field wearing a college sweater. Um, so, I mean, uh, representing the Hoyas, uh, as you did there in Nicaragua and everything. But uh, there's an interesting, there's a funny story about why you were rocking the college sweater in the middle of a tobacco field in, in, in Jalapa.
1: I packed so light, I only packed carry-ons because I was worried I would lose my luggage. I mean, I had never been to Nicaragua before. I didn't speak Spanish. So I was, you know, I was, you know, a little bit nervous. And uh, so I by the last three days of the event uh, of the, the trip, I was recycling clothes and that, and I, I even apologized. And like, I, I I'm wearing the same dinner jacket. I, you know, I, <laughs> so, um, rock the sweatshirt that day. And I, and I joked on that, that comment that you posted that I hope that Georgetown will use that for an admissions photo, but I-, I Absolutely. I <laughs> so, I
0: mean we, we've, we've talked about Luciano and, and, and I, and I had to say, you know what a, it, from a very pragmatic uh, point of view what a great case study he is personally for for your efforts with pca as you're talking to folks educating them um you know through your efforts and and, and even talking uh to people who are in opposition of our industry i mean he he's certainly not unique in the sense there are uh, there are throngs of people in this industry that do so much philanthropy and so much great work, um, but he is certainly an ambassador for that. Um, I, I'm, it, you know, like I said, I, I consider him a personal friend, and the 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 effort and work that he does uh, in in Nicaragua and 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 abroad, not just, yeah. is is incredible, and you know what an opportunity it must be to 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 talk to our opposition or to talk to people and educate them and show them a, a, a person like Luciano and mm-hmm. what he does outside of manufacturing great cigars.
1: Yeah. I and mean... He has a unique background. You know, he understands lobbying and advocacy. And, you know, we've talked about that. And, um, you know, it, it, I, the overall trip was fantastic because I got to see in visit with folks from, you know, Aganorsa, from Perdomo, from Oliva, um, AJ Fernandez, uh, you know, everybody was very welcoming and, um, you know, there were different processes. I mean, Oliva had the, uh, just a sophisticated, sophisticated setup. You know, the Perdomo production was massive. And like, I learned something along the way in each of those places. Um, and, um, I'm thankful to all of those folks for allowing me that access as well. And, you know, this is another one of those things where I'm a firm believer and will spend time and my own resources to invest in things that I believe in. Um, and, and, you know, for, for folks, we, I think we had one negative comment, like, you know, what, what, what's Josh doing in Nicaragua and that, um, you know, this is something that I also paid out of pocket. You know, Luciano was uh, my my host and, and uh, you know, allowed me to stay with him. Uh, but, you know, the flight and stuff like that, I, w- I wanna make sure that I'm, I'm taking my, my time to invest in it because I do plan on having a long-term career in this industry and wanna know the ins and outs. You know, if I don't have that experience and I'm presented with something on the Hill, um, I, I, I will be at a disadvantage. So I, I think that this was a key piece in my own career timeline uh, of gaining that knowledge and gaining an understanding of something that was kind of uncharted before.
0: As you mentioned, you were asking hundreds of questions to Luciana daily. Um and getting answers, uh, I'm sure, great answers and everything. What uh, it, it, this must be a hard question, and I apologize, but um, it, what was one of the what was the and 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 it's an open open ended question here, Josh. You interpret it how you want. What, what what was the most important or the funnest lesson you learned?
1: Oh man, uh, I think it's the- a tall
0: order. I admit, I'm I'm I am I'm putting it out there. I apologize.
1: You know, I think the rolling demonstration and the the bunching like together, um, and then seeing how quick folks um, in the factories are able to do that, um, as well as, uh, you know, the, the packaging, just seeing the complexity of everything come together, you know, from fermentation to farm to you know how it gets into a box you know we, we always use the statistic 300 people touch a premium cigar before it you know gets to the consumer you know that to me was just a statistic before i had that experience i got to go all along the process and you know um the draw testing seeing that done and how many quality control checks are are done throughout the process like that to me was eye-opening. Um, that there are, are so many moving pieces that come into this. Um, that you know, every time we enjoy one of these, we we should be very grateful and um, you know savor it. You know, I, I I've started saying even though I sometimes I say, you know, smoke cigars, I'm trying to say that I don't smoke cigars. I savor cigars. We savor cigars, um, and we truly do. I can agree with that
0: so um this is always the time of night josh where i i, I really want to issue some gratitude to you as my guest tonight you know um i always consider even with covid and everything i always consider sunday fi- family time and personal time as i mentioned already i interrupted scott earlier today with his family and he was uh, kind enough to take my call uh, and provide some insight for our fun topic of one must go tonight but um, um wanted to um before i have about three more final questions before we go into our curveball segment, which concludes our night. But, uh, um, you know, going back to your work, um, you mentioned earlier this week in your discussion with Scott on uh, the PCA uh, broadcast that uh, uh, an effort that you guys are putting forward. And I think this is a great way to educate uh, consumers and retailers alike uh, in this industry. Uh, you guys are publishing a, uh, an interactive map that's going to go up on the PCA website. Uh, which will uh, spotlight obviously issues as they pop up, legislative efforts as they pop up that are—I um, would have to say—where uh, we're focusing our efforts probably more than more so than than positive. But uh, but uh, talk about a little bit about why this is why this is so important and why you guys are pushing forward with it.
1: Yeah, we're excited about this new initiative. Um, one of the priorities that I set out in our our federal strategy and now our overall government relationship strategy that you know Glenn and Scott and I are all um, you know working towards this is transparency you know if you want to know where PCA stands on an issue you you should know that you shouldn't have to ask that question so um, in the bills that we're tracking I mentioned 700 plus um, there's about 50 of them that we're going to take a position on. so and even from that maybe 25 we send out an action alert but um, we wanna make sure that folks understand and if there's a, a cluster of states that you know, focus on a particular issue, then it might require a formal position statement that I draft and bring to our board or executive committee. Um, that actually happened last year with the issue of characterizing flavor. So if you go to Cigar Action, you'll actually see a formal position paper Um, adopted by the PCA board on characterizing flavors. So I hope that we do, you know, more of those of creating a a better understanding where PCA stands, where we're involved and what issues we're gonna tackle. And, um, you know, I think we'll get more input. I I think that a lot of the cigar media does a great job at highlighting um, the different issues that we face And I also want to be a resource to them. I want to improve the relations across the board. You know, I want to be more accessible as a resource to all of our members. And so our media um, is an important piece uh, of getting that information. So I also view this as a tool for, you know, folks as as yourself, um, you know, can utilize, you know when you have guests and you need to do some uh, additional research on the government relations side, you'll be able to use tools like this. And um, I mentioned before, I'm a, I'm a consumer first. So in that, I'm trying to create things that I think would be important um, for anybody across the industry, consumer, retailer, manufacturer, um, media, and, and, and that's one of them. So um, I also view shows, and we talked before, I viewed your show several times. I think Cigar Coop, uh, you know, Abe Devabna, across the board i'm getting information much like the tour that i did interactive with luciano i learn a lot from folks such as yourself um, and i think that we can have uh, an information sharing where we all advance the industry um, you know to the best of our abilities
0: i completely agree So uh, these last two subjects, I've actually been asking my guests uh, virtually every week about these particular issues. And I I have to say, I would be remiss not to ask you the same question. Now, um, I had Scott uh, Pierce on my show uh, shortly after this decision came down. So, you know, the decision to uh, cancel this year's uh, uh, PCA trade show happened. And then um, just a short time after that, it was actually Director Pierce who got up in front of held a uh, held a press conference with Cigar Media. Um, uh, informing, informing the Cigar Media about the decision for, of, of the PCA to furlough the staff, which at the time included Director Pierce himself and yourself. Um, thankfully, uh, at least in part, that did not come totally fruition. Uh, you and uh, Director Pierce were actually retained uh, and the furlough did not extend to you. But when this decision first came down, you first learned about it. What I mean, what? How did you view? I mean, there's no other way to say this. This wasn't an opportunity. This was a challenge. What? How did you first strategize about this challenge before you were ultimately again retained? Um, what were some of those initial strategizing meetings like, or or, or thought process, or discussions? Share some insight here, because I mean, I, I I have to I have to say that uh, it, it was it was a little disheartening uh, from where I sat. Um, because of the work that you and Scott and the entire PCA team and staff do, and to basically, uh, I, the metaphor I used was uh, play a hockey game without a goaltender. Um, talk about a little bit of insights there if you can.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think that COVID has presented challenges across the board for, you know, every, every association. I'm aware, you know, in that networking space that you know, associations, nonprofits, even corporations are all facing difficult budget decisions, difficult staff decisions. Um, And I have the utmost confidence um, in our leadership um, and our our board, our executive committee, in Scott and John, um, that they'll be able to navigate whatever storm that that we face. Um, So, you know, from, from my mindset, I never took the, um, you know, I never took my foot off the gas, so to speak. I knew that we were on the precipice of some big wins um, and we had a lot of momentum. We were, you know, we redid government relations at IPCPR and PCA when I came on board into the traditional trade association. We're still not completely done with that process. Um, you, you saw a lot more resources, a lot more communication, a lot more emphasis on advocacy. So my thought process was, I'm just gonna continue what I'm doing until I'm told to stop. And um, knowing that I have the, the confidence, you know, things worked out, we we're able to continue to fight. Um, you know, Scott and I had to put in uh, very long hours to keep the lights on. And, you know, fortunately we're, we have, you know, Lisa and Aaron, Uh, back and, you know, Glenn working on a consulting role now. Um, We had an incredible research assistant we we brought back on. But, um, you know, all of our board are business owners. They had to face similar decisions in their own individual businesses. I know that they didn't take anything lightly. Um, So, you know, of, of course, you don't want to hear Furloughs, or you want to have that stability. I think in anyone's career, you want to have that um, overall stability. And I think that, you know, we're, we're taking steps now. And Scott and John and, and the folks are ensuring that that's not going to transpire ever again and that we can have that career security and stability within the association. So, um, yeah, very difficult few weeks. Um, I feel for the folks that you know are no are no, no no longer with PCA, um, but it's um, it's something where we really have to ensure that in the individual things that we can control, we do the best that we can possible, um, you know. And if the, the furloughs were to go through, like I, I I would have you know I would have had to continue it, it, at even a volunteer basis on some of these things because you know, the industry, the decisions that were going on at that time would affect the industry for decades. And if no one's there, if no one's there looking out for, you know, the 3,000 plus retailers and 300 plus manufacturers, we would be doing a disservice. And again, that consumer focus of mine, it's so that I can continue to enjoy this as well. So there's no way of, of sugarcoating that it was a difficult time, but I think the way that we were able to navigate that and, and Scott and I really got close during that time and, and had to wear many different hats to, to borrow the analogy. Um, and if you notice in that period, we were still able to, you know, get a lot of victories. And I, I don't think yeah. our positive attitude ever waned, you know, despite all the challenges.
0: So I don't want to mischaracterize your words here, Josh. I mean, your intention, I mean, hindsight being 2020 and what it is, but your intention was to, to keep working. Uh, if, if the furloughs had gone through as, as, as it recently, uh, excuse me, as initially uh, announced, is that, am am I hearing you correctly?
1: Yeah. My, my, my personal vantage point was I, you know, if I was told not to do something, I would follow that, but you know, I, I was on all these email chains with members of Congress, with agency officials. Like we couldn't just say, "Oh, I'm I can't do this." You know, I'm, you know, that would have been a disservice to my fellow consumers, as as well as all the folks that are 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 in the industry. And I think that mentality, that positive attitude, um, I think that was a point where you earn a little bit of your stripes. You know, I think that you know some folks to. I was coming in here as somebody that jumped from a few associations and was you know, moving up the career ladder and that this would be a brief stint. And um, that's not the case. I'm in it for the long run. I'm in it for the challenges. I'm in it for the opportunities. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for every day to have a, a job where I can enjoy it. You know, I, I don't, I don't view it most days as, as a job, I view it as a passion and something that I enjoy.
0: Did you voice this sentiment to the board of directors? Did they hear about your intentions uh, before they decided to retain you?
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we had our, you know, conversations, Scott and I uh, mainly, um, I don't think it, it, it was my place to, at that time when all the things were going on um, to I- interact with the board, um, on, 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 that, you know, decisions were being made. I, I, Scott knew where, where I stood on everything. And, um, I, I think similarly, he was very positive. I think everybody was positive of like, you know, this is a, a tough situation. Um, I, I wouldn't have want to have been in the shoes of anyone at the decision table, but, you know we're presented with those different things over the course of the career um so you know i, I voiced that with, with 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 scott for sure and i i, I think that um scott is a, a fantastic boss um of, he's a friend and someone that i have the utmost respect for and um someone that's an advocate of mine and an advocate of the industry and in the long run, I knew that, you know, things, things will eventually work out.
0: Well, I'm, I'm certainly glad that it ended the way that it did, uh, in, in your case, I, I share your sentiment that, uh, uh with my heart going out to as well, to the people that are no longer a part of your team, uh, their efforts and their work will certainly be missed. And as you, as you, as you all restaff over uh, the next, hopefully weeks and months and everything is, I mean, do you, do you foresee PCA, uh, the staff looking differently, looking similar with different faces? What's the, uh, for as far as you know, what's the, what's the outlook there?
1: Well, you know, I, I think in, in terms of government affairs, I can speak to that. We're looking to, you know, make sure that we are servicing all of the needs um, we, of course, as you're well aware, there's a ton of stuff percolating in the states. We've got to make sure that we adequately adequately respond to that. Um, so, you know, I would love to get a, a government affairs, um, you know, manager or a you know, junior lobbyist that can assist with some of that. Um, we also have uh, Patrick Anderson from ProVenture Consultants who's assisting at at the federal and state level, he was previously a, a federal only consultant, um, and he has a, a, a all hands on deck ma- mentality as well. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can, you know, turn the curve and brighter future uh, for for the association um, will be there. But you know, we're preparing in government relations uh, to eventually staff up, uh, hopefully later this year.
0: Well, it's good to hear. Um, so with the uh, news in late to, uh, late last year and then going into this year, we're uh, seeing the news of the vaccine, right? Uh, several vaccines have been released and 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 uh, they are being distributed as quickly as possible with frontline workers, the elderly, uh, getting uh, that first kind of dose. And in fact, uh, I'm, I'm, it was pleasing to see a lot of my friends who are frontline workers to actually receive their second dose. And so now they're, they are, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, fully vaccinated. Um, so that's that's some good news. It certainly seems to me that this this is potentially the beginning of the end of uh, of the COVID era, thankfully. Uh, yeah. And um, what what does the what, what does the future of PCA and your position specifically look like um, as the vaccine continues to get distributed? And you know, certainly, um, you know, you know you know, as quickly, again, as quickly as possible and everything, what is, what opportunity does that present um, uh, to the, from the PCA perspective?
1: I think it's, you know, there is an infectious willingness to get together for in-person meetings, for events, I think there's a lot of excitement, you know, if it's smaller events, you know, 50 people out here, I think that you're gonna see a boom, uh, a boom in the event side of things where people can interact. I think the virtual stuff has been incredible. I'm hoping a lot of that continues. So I want you're here. to see the, you know, PCA continued to do some of that content um, virtual, um, you know, on the government affairs side, it was great. I was getting more participation from members interacting with members of Congress because there wasn't the barrier of having to fly to D.C. to get a hotel room to incur all that cost. I could do a Zoom session um, with our members. So for me, that was, um, you know, really a, a positive side of this year. I think we got really innovative with the different uh, technologies and, and the industry at a large, the media, Uh, did a great job filling that void of some of these in-person events. So I think, you know, in the coming months when more and more people are vaccinated, um, you know, we'll we'll go in return to that events-based interaction. Um, I had COVID in April um, and uh, lost taste and smell for four days. That was the only thing that um, I underwent. And um, ever since then, I've been taking all the precautions. Both of my parents also had it during uh, that time. I was oh my in goodness. At Pennsylvania for a month um, when that transpired. And um, after that, I've, you know, I'll take all the precautions. But I mentioned following that, when I returned to DC, I hit the ground running. You know, we had socially distanced meetings. We had you know, some live events. So We saw a few of those already take place over the, um, you know, months of, of the end of 2020. So I, I plan on having a very active schedule of, you know, in-person outreach, doing the meetings, but doing a, a hybrid model where we leverage the technologies and the lessons learned of the past year, but also uh, deploy the tried and true of, you know, being able to get gatherings of people to enjoy cigars and and talk about the issues facing the the world today.
0: I know your expertise and your role with PCA is government affairs. And so the trade show is outside of your purview. Um, Although it's a very, very key part of the organization. I I don't want to get too far on the rabbit hole down this, but I I have to ask you. um, I mean, again, With all the positive news, the vaccine coming and rolling out and everything, there's still a lot of concern that the PCA trade show 2021 is in peril. It's in danger of not happening again. That would be two years in a row. From where you sit, where does that stand?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I'm taking all preparations, you know, as far as we know, you know, July's ago. Um, you know, Nevada, it, it's, it's tough. It really depends on, you know, what the, the state and their guidelines are going to be for trade shows. And, um, you know, I think that in, in my sphere, we're going to be prepared for, you know, having the government affairs sessions, having, um, you know, I want this trade summit idea, this international trade summit, um, that would be something that would be connected to the trade show, where we would have the ministers of Trade and Commerce and import and export coming to this uh, event, so um, you know we're making preparations for that. The initial conversations I've talked to folks, in, um, you know, in government in Honduras, the DR, and Nicaragua over the past two weeks. So, you know, we're we're going to prepare as if everything's a go until her until we hear otherwise. So. Um, you know, again, I trust the judgment of our, our uh, team that makes that decision. I know that uh, there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm this year uh, for a show, for the Super Bowl of the cigar industry to uh, transpire. And I'm hopeful that, you know, all these other events can take place too. You know, I, I'm not one of the people, it's like an either or. I think it's, it, you know, where we can have you know, meaningful interactions of the cigar industry, um, it, it's for the better. And I, I was sad that in January and February, a lot of the national festivals in the DR and, and Honduras and, and Nicaragua will cancel. But I'm hoping that, you know, the folks there might be able to find a place at PCA so that they can come together uh, in, in a meaningful way as well. So when one door closes, another opens, um, you know, contingency plans with anything will, will take place. Um, and again, I, I trust the judgment of the, the leadership to make those decisions. But you know from my finite perspective in GR, we're, we're planning all systems to go. Good to hear. So Josh, we've reached the
0: conclusion of our night and I have one final question for you. And um, it would be really inconsistent of me. And frankly, I would find it rude not to share the same sentiments that I've shared with uh, Glenn, Loop, and and Scott Pierce in previous previous shows and previous occasions, where I've had the opportunity uh, to interview them. I think the three of you have an incredible difficult job. And I also feel that you all do a very good job. It's thankless. It's difficult. It's very hard. And... You're asked to do it, and you guys do it incredible. Do a very good job with it. I don't, and I've said to Director Pierce and Director Loop at the time that they haven't done a great job because a great job would constitute a premium cigar exemption. Since that hasn't happened, I can't say that they've done a great job, nor can I say that you've done a great job. But I can't say that you've done a great, a good job. And uh, and I appreciate the efforts that you do more than the most. um, I admire the three of you incredibly well. And I think uh, I think that the job that you're doing um, is more than essential. It's more than pivotal. It's the bedrock of our industry. And the more so that the more that we can educate and get people on board with this, realize the incredible work that you do, the incredible difficulty in which you do it, the better. So that all that seriousness aside, This curveball segment is supposed to be a little fun. So let's play a little fantasy game. Okay. Let's say you do a great job. It happens. The premium cigars are now exempt. Victory is achieved. What next becomes the top priority for the PCA Government Affairs Division? or do you all just slide up a cigar and drink champagne? What?
1: <laughs> I, I, I think that, you know, if we get the exemption um, or, you know, a, a, a regulatory structure that we can, um, you know, work with, I think we've got to go after some of these OTP taxes. I think that, you know, like New York, the, the tax increases, um, I want to I want to consistently lower the costs of what our members have to pay, um, you know, manufacturer and retailer. I want to see the cigar industry, premium cigar industry, grow uh, of you know legal adults that occasionally enjoy a, le- a legal product, um, and um, I think that that is another area that we have to simultaneously tackle. Um, I don't wanna see any tax increases, especially during this COVID time go into effect. And that's what we're really working hard on right now. Um, You know, New York last year was unfortunate. They wanna increase it again. Like we have to have our defenses up as it relates to that. We don't wanna price people out of the market. We don't wanna have, um, you know, You should be able to get a premium cigar for an affordable price so that you can enjoy it. People across socioeconomic, um, you know, different divisions there should be able to enjoy premium cigars. And whether you live in, um, you know, California or Pennsylvania or Illinois or Texas, you should have access to purchase a legal product as a legal adult. I firmly believe that, and I'm, I want to make sure that you know the restrictions. Um, we don't see those mounting restrictions, and like also prohibitions and smoking bans. That really bothers me, um, you know, at a, at a personal level, especially when you go on vacation somewhere, and um, you know you're you're somewhere nice and warm. And uh, what do you want to do? You want to light up a cigar and, and have a, a cocktail. And when you can't find anywhere to enjoy a cigar because the hotel prohibits it or the uh, local government prohibits on the beach, um, stuff like that, I think is the next wave. Um, I also don't want to see folks being discriminated against for being a cigar smoker. Like you shouldn't have to pay, you know their employers shouldn't be able to say, you're not allowed to smoke cigars. Um, that, that is Three another thing that we're researching and looking into. And the new frontier of tobacco control in that sphere is what keeps me up at night. I think we'll be able to, you know, navigate substantial equivalence and some of the, you know, pre-market review process. I think we have a lot of stuff in our favor but uh, some of these other issues. And there's just so many local governments, the scope and the sphere of what we are involved in, that, um, you know, I can say, if you combine all of the cigar associations and even throw in the, the uh, folks at NATO and some of the other connected groups, we're stretched thin, we need, we need more support. And that's why, you know, I, I have to give a shameless plug, sign up for Cigar Action, completely free, uh, especially for, you know, the retailers, employees, and then also the consumers, you know, get involved in Cigar Rights of America. And so we can fight this and, and, and build an army that can combat a lot of the stuff that's, you know, scary on the new, new, new frontier of tobacco control.
0: absolutely josh I, I can't thank you enough for your time tonight it really means the world to me uh for you to share your evening with us and sit down and have a great conversation uh about the efforts that you and your team and the government of the affairs division at pca have been doing for our industry i uh, went ahead and placed the cigar uh, cigaraction.org link in uh, the chat there so you guys can join uh, for free as uh, josh mentioned just a moment ago and but i really want to thank my audience for tuning in tonight Uh, appreciate all the likes shares and comments um and uh if you are listening to us uh wherever you listen to podcasts uh, later on whether that be apple Podcasts, spotify google play podbean or wherever you listen to podcasts uh, be sure you download subscribe and review uh if you are are a subscriber i encourage you to unsubscribe but please 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 don't forget to resubscribe because that really helps my numbers and i can keep continue to bring on great guests uh like joshua tonight um Really do appreciate that. You can always uh, check us out on Facebook, which is where we're broadcasting live tonight. Ellos Fumar is the Facebook page. You can also tune in later at the uh, uh, on our YouTube page, Ellos Fumar, as well. Um, but again, you can also listen to us wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Podbean, or iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We do appreciate all your likes, shares, comments, and support. Uh, t- uh, check out uh, our Ellos Fumar Facebook page. Uh, for our calendar of upcoming guests including uh, to, uh take 155 which will be uh next week and we're really excited to uh to um to welcome in will cooper of cigar coop will be uh, reg- uh will be joining us back here uh at uh you uh, know at the uh alec bradley lone star studios and he won't actually be sitting with me but we'll be uh we'll be broadcasting live from here and having a great discussion with him he has some important issues to talk about uh, some involving in the cigar industry some outside of it and uh, we're really excited to sit with him again um, but uh, joshua thank you so much for your time and i can't thank you enough uh, really 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 appreciate it thank you
1: thank you uh, bear we really appreciate everything that you do in the cigar media world and you know if you ever need anything or have you know questions or need resources uh, don't hesitate to reach out and, um, you know, I, I, I hope to do, you know, more of these segments and, you know, ha- also engage with Cigar Media in, in, in different ways. And I think, you know, as we face some of these challenges, um, your, your role will, will definitely be heightened. I, I envision, um, you know, a future where Cigar Media are signing onto letters because we're fighting uh, for, for free speech. Um, over over some some of the different issues that we face in the cigar industry. So uh, keep doing what you're doing, and again, you know, whatever whatever I can be uh, helpful, uh, please uh, feel free to reach out.
0: Thank you for that, Josh. Appreciate it. And uh, yeah, stay on stay on with. Me. I know it's really late, but stay on with me real quick. I do want to talk to you about a couple other things. But uh, to our audience tonight, thank you so much. This was our 154th take. Can't believe I've done 154. These are just unbelievable. So, uh, really appreciate our guest of honor. As always, this uh, I'm Baird Uplysi live from the Alec Bradley Lone Star Studios of Euless, Texas. This was take 154. He's Joshua Haberski, and guess what, everyone. We'll see you next time.